The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The human brain has an estimated 70 to 100 billion neurons that fire along ever-changing pathways. Our brains are always changing for better or for worse. Modern research has demonstrated that the brain continues to create new neural pathways and alter existing ones in order to adapt to new experiences, learn new information, and create new memories. Neurons are information messengers. They use electrical impulses and chemical signals to transmit information between different areas of the brain and between the brain and the rest of the nervous system. And when those chemical signals the neurons use change, we change. And if the chemical change is drastic, the change in us can often be drastic as well, for better or for worse. Anyone who suffered from a severe episode of mental illness or who has gotten really, really high on one of many mind-altering drugs that affect brain chemistry can attest to changing chemistry really affecting how one behaves, thinks, feels, acts, etc. Today, we're going to celebrate the life of a man whose atypical brain initially helped launch him to the heights of fame and then in the end, completely betrayed him and left him fearing his own now fragile mind. Actor, comedian, and entertainment legend, Robin Williams, a man whose brain chemistry helped give him unparalleled wit and a gift to give others so much joy. And then that chemistry shifted and left him with confusion, delusion, paranoia, sadness, and hopelessness. And he never even knew what he was suffering from, what was attacking him from the inside out. The truth wouldn't be discovered until years after his death. Despite not understanding what happened to him, despite spending so much of his final months Years even, wondering if he had dementia or schizophrenia or Parkinson's, he kept making those around him laugh. He kept being romantic to his wife, a loving father to his kids, someone his friends could always count on, and a generous and kind coworker to whoever he was working with. Dude had his critics, detractors. We'll discuss that today as well, but overall, I think even some comics who accused him of stealing their jokes would say that Robin Williams was a fucking champion of a human being. And he's the first comic we've covered here on Time Suck, a comic who made the difficult jump to TV stardom, then film stardom, a comic who can make you laugh until you cried and also dazzle you in a drama and win awards without ever cracking a joke. A one-of-a-kind force in nature when it came to entertaining others in a variety of ways. Williams' career spanned 36 years with countless memorable films, TV shows, Grammy-winning comedy albums, and charity events. 
He won damn near every award the entertainment business has to offer. After roughly four decades of consistently working to make people feel joy and, in his own words, to help people be less afraid, it is a terrible kind of irony that Robin Williams left the earth in such a joyless way. We know now that his self-induced death in 2014 did not come out of depression, as many had speculated, but from a crippling and fatal form of a nasty brain disease called Lewy body dementia that he'd been suffering with the advanced stages of for months and months. LBD would make the last few years of Robin's life incredibly painful for him, his family, and his many friends and collaborators. From long and intense bouts with insomnia, paranoia, delusions, even hallucinations, Robin had become in his final months deeply aware that he was no longer himself. At one point, he said to his wife he wished he could reboot his brain. And if that would have been possible, he'd probably still be with us. Still making new movies that made us laugh and made us cry. The world loved Robin Williams, still loves him. Today, we look into why. Today, we examine the glorious rise and tragic fall of one of the most unique minds in showbiz. It's another Biosuck edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins. Suck master, suck nasty, the British royal family's jeweler, Bojangles' political advisor, and you are listening to Time Sick. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, thank you to everyone who came out to the Portland, Oregon shows two weeks ago. So much fun. That Saturday second show, got a special appearance from Kyle Kinane. Love that he dropped in for a set preparing for his own tour. Catch that dude wherever you can. So smart, so funny. Uh, I'll be with Doug Mellard, another very funny dude. He's opening up for me in Philadelphia for five shows at Punchline. That chain is on the uh, brain today. It's a sister club of Punchline in San Francisco. Robin Williams used to drop in there for sets. Uh, I'll actually be at Cobbs, another club Williams used to pop into from time to time in San Francisco in October. And I'll be talking all about Williams' stand-up days here soon. I'll also be at the Columbus Funny Bone this month. Uh, not many tickets left for the Columbus shows. At least one of the Philly shows sold out as well, so thank you for that. A uh, very different kind of item in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Cult of the Curious playing cards. Get your rummy on with a suck-themed deck. Uh, love it. And one more announcement today, that's charity. Uh, something that Rob Williams was also a big fan of, a big philanthropist. Uh, Bad Magic Productions will be donating at least 15000 of our Patreon subscriptions this month to the American Nurses Foundation Coronavirus Response Fund for Nurses. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, I should know the exact amount next week. Nurses have bore the brunt of the work the past 18 months. With the ongoing pandemic, they've been working more hours than ever, getting sick more often, dying more often. They've been on the front line the whole time. They continue to risk their lives to help the vaccinated and non-vaccinated alike, which I think is pretty noble. This response fund provides mental health support, direct financial aid, education, and evidence-based information, and overall advocacy for nurses. To find out more, click the link in our episode description or just uh, search for Coronavirus Response Fund for Nurses on Google or whatever browser you use. It comes up first. Also, hearts go out to the 13 U.S. military service members killed in Kabul, helping with evacuations. I uh, would like our active duty and veteran suckers to know that we will honor their sacrifice and the sacrifice of so many others by donating to a military charity again in November, keeping the tradition of donating to a military charity every November alive. And sometimes we do, do donate additionally to the military on other months. Now, I've been reading lots of articles on Afghanistan. It's been on my mind a lot lately and wanted to share that. Uh, now let's dig into the life of a guy who threw out some of the best quotes ever. Like, never pick a fight with an ugly person. They've got nothing to lose. And reality is just a crutch for people who can't cope with drugs. Our Patreon space lizards voted, and Robin Williams is getting sucked. 
While I didn't pick this topic, the timing for it could not be more perfect for me. Before Robin Williams was a sitcom star and then a bona fide movie star, he was what I've been for most of my adult life, a stand-up comic, comedian. He was a comic who was just a joy to watch and perform. Uh, he was a joy to watch perform in part, uh, definitely for me at least, because he seemed to have so much damn fun performing. Well, I always preferred, uh, you know, either the more structured storytelling and social commentary approach of like George Carlin or the deadpan imaginative absurdity of a Stephen Wright. I did always appreciate the special frenetic, the train could go completely off the fucking rails at any moment energy of Robin Williams' performances. Always appreciated the manic joy he brought to his work. Uh, and 20 years after my first open mic, I've been having more fun than ever. Uh, after a 17-month COVID hiatus, after a year and a half of not working on bits, doing shows, even setting foot in a comedy club, of trying to convince myself I was over stand-up and just didn't want to do it anymore. I've been having the most fun I've ever had on stage. I didn't realize how burnout I was getting. Launching a podcast business, recording multiple weekly shows, creating weekly bonus content for Patreon listeners, touring too much while trying to, still trying to be a good, you know, active husband and father. Also trying to work out and take care of myself. Uh, it wasn't leaving me a lot of time for, you know, sleep. And I was starting to resent doing all the things I loved, especially stand-up. The time it would take to get to places, uh, trying to get my podcast prepped on, on, you know, airports and hotels and around radio call-ins and morning TV promos. Well, the hiatus allowed me to refocus, uh, get my podcast affairs in order, learn how to be more organized, how to plan more, rely on a team more, hire and train more, uh, rest more, <laughs> feel okay saying no to certain promotional obligations, just certain, uh, you know, work opportunities. And I was able with Lindsay and the team here has helped to create the space, not just to do stand-up again, but to enjoy it. And holy shit, do I enjoy it. Uh, now I see it as a gift instead of just taking it for granted. And I think William saw it as a gift too. For most of his stand-up career, he did not need to do it at all. He didn't need to do it after just the first few years. You know, once he started making uh, that Mork and Mindy money in 1978, uh, he didn't need stand-up money. And he just kept getting project after project and just, yeah, truly didn't need to do it. He already has, you know, a full-time job acting in project after project, movie after movie, you know, showing up in TV shows. I, I don't think he did it for the money. I think he did it because he just loved to make people laugh. I think I forgot for a while. That's why you should be doing it. That should be the primary focus, as simple as, uh, as, as that is. It's how could you forget that uh, to make people laugh? I think I kind of did. I think I was making it too much about me, what stories I wanted to tell, how I wanted the show to go, you know, how much I needed to make or thought I needed to make at these venues, how many tickets I needed to sell, you know, uh, needed in quotes. And all that's important, you know, the bigger part of the term show business uh, is business, but the most important part should always be just making sure the audience has a fucking great time. They have a great time. You should have a great time. Now I'm doing the same shows I was doing before, but with a different perspective and focus. I don't even think most fans will notice a difference, but I feel it. And, uh, and I can tell Robin had that perspective that he felt that he was, he was hyper aware of how joyless stand-up comedy could be. And I think he took a, you know, a, a lot of strides to avoid that. He once said regarding his fellow comics, it's a brutal field, man. They burn out. It takes its toll. Plus the lifestyle, partying, drinking, drugs. If you're on the road, it's even more brutal. You got to come back down to mellow your ass out. Then performing takes you back up. They flame out because it comes and goes. Suddenly they're hot and then somebody else is hot. Sometimes they get very bitter. Sometimes they just give up. Sometimes they have a revival thing and they come back again. Sometimes they snap. The pressure kicks in. You become obsessed and then you lose that focus that you need. Yeah, Robin knew how not to do stand-up. He was a sharp guy. He's a very sharp guy. In the end, I actually think his razor sharp mind maybe made him more hyper aware of how his mind wasn't working like it should than maybe somebody else's uh, mind would. I'm excited to share his brilliant mind with you today. Not a lot of setup required for this week's suck. Uh, Robin Williams, one of the most famous comedians and actors in the history of either profession. Guessing you've probably heard of him. 
Uh, in case you haven't, here's a quick overview of some of his major achievements. During the course of his career, Williams won so many awards, including an Academy, an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Goodwill Hunting, 1997. He uh, won six Golden Globe Awards, including Best Actor, Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for his roles in Good Morning Vietnam, and 1987, The Fisher King in 1991, Mrs. Doubtfire in 1993, along with winning the Special Golden Globe Award for Vocal Work and a Motion Picture for his role as the Genie in Aladdin in 1992. Won the uh, Golden Globe Cecil DeMille, uh, award, Cecil B. DeMille, to be precise, award in 2005 for outstanding contributions to the world of entertainment. On top of all that, he received two Primetime Emmy Awards, two Screen Actors Guild Awards, nine Grammy Award nominations, five Grammy wins, three of them for Best Stand-Up Album of the Year. So much fucking talent, so much success. He always seems so damn happy, like over-the-top happy. Maybe some of it was uh, uh, over-the-top as far as, uh, as in, the, in the way of being like forced. He might have been hiding some pain. Maybe that was the way he masked some of the pain he felt. There was a dark side to Robin's life. Uh, he did fall into depression on numerous occasions. Uh, he did get real heavy into drugs, struggled to keep his home life together, was married three times. We'll go over all that in today's timeline. We'll also meet Robin's parents, peer into his very unique childhood. It was not what I expected. Uh, watch his rise from a high school drama star into a young guy that looked like he was going to be a professional student, uh, you know, to uh, not getting a degree from several institutions of higher learning to being an international icon. Before we get into the timeline, Let's first look at some of the sciencey stuff of the brain disease that took him from us, that Lewy body dementia. This thing's a, this disease is a real piece of shit. Uh, Lewy body dementia, it's a disease associated with abnormal deposits of a protein called alpha-synuclein in the brain. Uh, synuclein, 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 <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, these deposits, call, I think I had it right the first time and I second guessed myself. These deposits called Lewy bodies affect chemicals in the brain who, uh, whose changes in turn it can lead to problems with thinking, movement, behavior, and mood. You know, some pretty important shit. Lewy body dementia is one of the most common causes of overall dementia, and about 1.3 million Americans currently have it. Uh, dementia is the loss of overall cognitive functioning, thinking, remembering, reasoning, to such an extent that it interferes with a person's daily life and activities, sometimes substantially. Dementia is a sneaky, shady, flat-out evil motherfucker with no redeeming qualities. If dementia was a human being, even the most passive, progressive, liberal people on earth would want to fucking throat punch and or nut kick dementia to death. No cure yet for dementia. Once you begin to suffer from it, if you live long enough, it just keeps getting worse. You can learn to manage symptoms and lessen its effects somewhat, but it never actually gets better. People suffering from dementia struggle to control their emotions to varying degrees. Their personalities often change and degrade. Dementia robs you of you. It's like someone sneaks an eraser into your brain and starts wiping away little pieces of your memories and cognitive abilities. Starts wiping away little pieces of you. It's fucking terrible. Uh, dementia ranges in severity from the mildest stage when it's just beginning to affect a person's functioning to the most severe stage when the person must depend completely on others for basic activities of living because they don't know, uh, you know, what the fuck is going on with almost anything anymore. They're technically alive. Their heart still beats. Their lungs still take in and expel air. But the person they used to be, that person's dead and gone. So fuck dementia. People who suffer from dementia don't typically begin to show symptoms until age 50 or older, although sometimes people even younger than 50 can get LBD. Yeek. No, thank you. Uh, I wish it worked that way with diseases and tragedies, like in general, that you could just be like, no, thank you. And then you just wouldn't get it, right? Or you could just get rid of it. Like, you know, like you haven't been feeling yourself, you're at the doctor's office, you know, and she tells you, uh, well, we just got the results back and... Uh, I'm sorry to say you have Lewy body dementia. And then you can just be like, no, thank you. 
And she's like, uh, no, that's not how, that's not how it works. Uh, you, you do have it. No, thank you. I wish it worked that way, Dan, but we don't get to pick and choose what affects us. No, thank you. I do. Run the test again. I don't have it anymore. And after a bunch of arguing and agreeing to pay for it outside of your insurance, you know, the doctor comes back with new test results, your next appointment. And she's like, oh my God, this is incredible. You barely do not have Louis body dementia any longer. Uh, we, we re-ran the results twice and just, yeah, nothing. Uh, your cholesterol is a bit high though. No, thank you. Listen, I don't know how you got lucky. I said no, thank you. Run some more tests. I wish. Uh, back to reality. Uh, early LBD symptoms are often confused with similar symptoms uh, found in other brain diseases or psychiatric disorders. Most common symptoms include changes in cognition, movement, sleep, and behavior. So almost, you know, all of you can occur alone or along with other brain disorders. It's progressive disease that, you know, starts slowly and then worsens over time. Lasts an average of five to eight years from the time of diagnosis to death, but can range from two to 20 years for some people. No cure for the disease at this time. And the precise, precise cause of LBD is unknown. Unfortunately, no specific lifestyle factor has been proven to increase one's risk for LBD. That would also be nice. If, if you know, something very specific led to it. And, like, and, I, and ideally something real atypical that you could easily cut out of your life. Like uh, yo-yoing. You know, just stop fucking around with yo-yos and you don't get LBD. Easy peasy. No walking the dog, no sleeper, no around the world. Just put the yo-yo down. Keep your mind sharp. No, thank you. Uh, what a terrible way to live. To not have any control over your mind and for a genius of a man like Robin Williams whose mind ran a lot uh, wilder, faster than most, whose mind had to stay exceptionally sharp in order for him to continue doing his job and keep being him, feeling his mind slip further and further from what it once was, uh, you know, just proved to be too much to take. I, I get it as much as I can for not experiencing anything like he did. If I had to pick, I'd rather lose my body than my mind. You know, not a fun choice either way, but, but your mind, I mean, that's who you are. When you lose your mind, are you really even you anymore? Various forms of dementia have always seemed to me to be, uh, you know, sort of a living death. You know, like, again, like you're just like a zombie of sorts. Mindless zombie shuffling through life, not possessing any higher thoughts, mostly fixated on feeding hospital or assisted living facility food instead of human brains, I guess. No, thank you. No, thank you. So let's jump into this week's uh, very nanu, nanu lace time suck timeline now, you shazbots. Won't be nearly as depressing as me explaining how terrible this disease is, I promise. Uh, Robin's death lasted but a moment. His life lasted over 60 years. And what a life it was. Nimrod, very pleased with it. Let's get to exploring. <laughs> Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On July 21st, 1951, Robin McLaurin Williams is born at St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. A child of English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, French, and German ancestry, his father, Robert Fitzgerald Williams, was a senior executive in Ford Motor Company's Lincoln Mercury Division. Bob was from the Midwest himself. He was a hardworking, meticulous, plain-spoken, practical man. He was not a manic, improvisational genius, tossing out witty historical and pop culture references, sprinkled in with a lot of dick jokes. He was a war hero who believed in the value of a hard day's work. He was not an overly emotional man, was not known to dole out compliments to his young, young son easily, hardly ever actually. Uh, Robin's mother, Lori McLaurin, a uh, former fashion model from Jackson, Mississippi, great-granddaughter of a former Mississippi governor, and in many ways the opposite of her husband. She was a lighthearted Southerner, described as a free spirit and fanciful. Uh, she was like her son, would later come across as uh, unpredictable. She gave her son Robin a lot of attention, but like her husband, her affirmations were hard to come by except when it came to laughter. She loved to laugh, and Robin loved to make her laugh, to hear her laugh. 
Robin saw himself as a perfect mixture between his two very different parents. He would say, the craziness comes from my mother. The discipline comes from my dad. Uh, my dad has a lot of discipline too. Uh, you know, you have to. You have to have a lot of discipline if you want to get away with, you know, what my, what my dad's probably been you know, getting away with for years. Where is he? Where is he right now? God, I wish I knew. If you don't get that reference, don't even worry about it. Just, uh, just, just protect yourself, especially if you see my dad coming. Uh, anyway, while Robin's mother was a practitioner of Christian science, uh, Williams was raised in the Episcopal Church. His father belonged to Episcopalians, American Anglicans, American Anglicans. All the great taste of Catholicism, minus the Pope. Uh, and priests are allowed to get their dick sucked. Uh, the church condones it. Uh, married blowjobs, that is, you know, uh, from adults. Uh, Episcopalians branched out of the Church of England in America directly following the conclusion of the American Revolution. They're Anglicans who just won't bend the knee to the British crown. Thought I'd explain that a bit since we just talked about English royalty last week. Uh, a lot of the information about Robin's childhood and various sources comes from interviews Robin himself gave. And his memory of his childhood, early childhood, seems a little distorted. Uh, like he often described himself as an overweight child, but his mom would often bring out pictures of him to, to show him that he for sure was not. Um, she would show interviewers. He also often called himself an only child, but that wasn't really true. Kind of true, but not really true. Uh, Williams had two older half-brothers that he accepted and loved as his brothers, but he didn't spend a lot of time with either of them during his childhood. So maybe just easier to say he was an only child in interviews and stuff. Uh, Robin also described himself as lonely and isolated as a kid, but yet had ample friends at every school he attended. Robin seemed to, in some ways, you know, like a lot of people in showbiz, uh, play with his backstory a bit. Like a lot of storytellers, you know, he just couldn't help uh, himself when it came to tinkering around with his own backstory a little bit. Uh, and also, you can for sure feel isolated and lonely despite being surrounded by so-called friends. Maybe Robin didn't really connect with a lot of the kids early in his life. Maybe they had a hard time keeping up with his intense and quick-moving imagination. Uh, while he had a lot of casual friends, I'm not sure he had a lot of deep, you know, friendships, a lot of solid, meaningful friendships. His dad moved around too much for that during his formative years. And because of this, Robin was the new kid in class uh, too often for his liking. I can relate to that a bit. Uh, I first went to two grade schools in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, you know, as a little kid, didn't uh, keep any friends from the first one. When I went to the second, didn't keep any ones from the second when I moved uh, out of state. You know, so then I was a new kid in Riggins halfway through the third grade. I was born in Riggins, but I left so young, I didn't have any friends I was returning to. Then I left Riggins to go to high school my freshman and sophomore year in Las Vegas, where I knew no one at school except literally uh, a kid I'd met, you know, a few weeks before classes started. Uh, in, in my neighborhood. And then we didn't have any classes together, had different lunch hours. Then I moved back to Riggins, my junior and senior year, you know, said goodbye to my Vegas friends forever. And while I did know almost everyone in Riggins now, you know, I've been out of the loop for two years. Uh, you know, time moves fast when you're in high school. People had moved on. I ended up being a bit of an odd man out in some ways. Then I went to college. None of my friends from high school went to the same college, you know, uh, two kids from my class, but we weren't close. Started over again, completely rebuilt a social circle. And I think rebuilding a few different times, definitely, uh, you know, helped me build a sense of humor. I knew I could make people laugh when I was a little kid. And when I moved back to Riggins in third grade, I figured out it could help get me friends, my sense of humor, knowing I could make people laugh for sure helped me make friends in Vegas uh, and at college in Gonzaga. And I do wonder how much, you know, these moves helped Robin build his sense of humor. I imagine they helped a little bit. But of course, you know, not everyone needs to bounce around to become funny, uh, but I do think it helps. I find that very few comics come from like an affluent, stable home where they never moved, were able to form lengthy, stable peer relationships. Uh, if they did have a super stable childhood like that, uh, you know, they were almost uh, never the attractive, popular, standout athlete type, at least. Usually, not always, but usually comedic, uh, comedic skills come from not being the cool kid, from not having athletics or good looks to rely on to keep the bullies and low self-esteem inner voices at bay. You know, it comes from like, a, <laughs> like a, uh, an insecurity of some kind. Uh, Robin certainly didn't have a shitty childhood. 
Certainly not in the way so many subjects on the on the suck have had. Robin would later say, it's the contradiction of what people say about comedy and pain. My childhood was really nice. I, I, and it was nice on the surface. I don't, I don't think it was as quite as nice as he is uh, stating here. And I'll show that as we move along. You know, it a surface, uh, material-wise, materialism-wise, uh, yeah, it was upper-class nice. Moved around a lot, but did move around in comfort. Uh, you know, he had very concerned growing up like we all do, but money was not one of them. Robin grew up in luxury and he knew it. You know, he even joked about it later in his act, acting in uh, conversations, you know, acting out conversations with his parents where they would say things uh, or he would say things to them like, daddy, daddy, come upstairs. Biffy and Muffy aren't happy. We only have seven sevens. The other families have 10. You know, he'd joke about it. But when he was pressed on the subject in interviews in a serious way, he did have a hard time admitting that his family was truly wealthy. Uh, it almost kind of seemed like he was embarrassed by his privilege. So many stand-up comics like myself, we do come from, you know, nothing or next to nothing. We do tend to wear that as a badge of honor. A lot of camaraderie amongst comics, hanging out in clubs or in green rooms, whatever, talking about shitty gigs you do early on for next to no money or no money or how poor we were growing up. Uh, the rich kid, in my experience, uh, at least, is a, is a real rarity in stand-up circles. Uh, John Mulaney, famous comic I worked with a few times early on. We started around the same time. Uh, one of the few comics I've worked with who clearly came from a lot of money. Dad's a big corporate lawyer. Mom's a noted professor, or at least was. That's very atypical in stand-up circles. Uh, it shouldn't matter, but maybe it mattered to Robin. You know, a, a comic who gave Robin one of his first breaks was Richard Pryor. He's kind of like the quintessential comics comic. Dude uh, grew up dirt fucking poor, spent his early years in a, in a brothel where his mom worked before abandoning him at the age of 10. He was physically uh, abused by his grandma who ran the place. He was sexually abused by customer, uh, dropped out of school, ran away at the age of 14. Rough childhood. And then use that kind of roughness to build a, a rough and very likable act. Uh, another giant of stand-up when Williams was getting going is uh, my favorite comic of all time who had an odd childhood, uh, Steph Coxcurvy. His, uh, his uh, You Might Be a Killer Routines won him numerous, uh, you know, incredibly popular HBO specials. Uh, like 1981's uh, Grandpa Daddies and Sister Mamas, a theme show of jokes about Ted Bundy's childhood. If your grandpa daddy... Raised you to think your mama was your sister? You might be a killer. You know, jokes like that. He had, uh, if your grandpa daddy beat your grandma mama in front of your sister mama and swung cats by the tail while raising you, you might be a killer. You might be Ted Bundy. He also released a uh, special titled Mother, Cats on Sticks and Windpipe Fornication. They won a Grammy in 1975, uh, you know, set in kind of a super fucked up dark parallel world. Um, Steph's not real in our world, by the way. Just, just in the suck first, if you're confused. Uh, for real now, I was joking there. Another giant of stand-up uh, when Williams was getting going was uh, my favorite comic of all time, George Carlin. My real favorite comic of all time. And George grew up poor as well. Alcoholic dad split when he was just two months old, frequently ran away from home, got expelled from a few different schools. Uh, Background-wise, Robin was the very rare comic who came from money. Uh, Robin's father, Bob, actually known as Rob, uh, had also come from a background of wealth and been taught the repeated lesson that adversity could be overcome through labor and perseverance. Williams took that family work ethic and ran with it with his stand-up and film career. Uh, Robbie Bobby, he was born in 1906 into a well-to-do family in Evansville, Indiana. Home of Don Mattingly, one of the greatest Yankees players of all time, one of the greatest players never to be enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Sorry. Uh, his father, Robert Ross Williams, owned strip mines and lumber companies. Uh, in Evansville. And like Robin later, his grandfather, Robbie Bobby's dad, would struggle with alcoholism and infidelity. While he studied at prep school, Rob's uh, father would go on what uh, Robin's mom, Lori, would later describe as periodic toots. 
funny, funny phrasing there, uh, taking a suite at the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago where he'd grab a chorus girl or two and just, quote, whoop it up. And sometimes it fell to his son, Rob, when he was as young as 12, to travel the 300 miles north of Chicago with the uh, family servant, get his dad to sober up and bring him back home. So that's probably not a fun part of his childhood. Rob later enrolled in Kenyon College in Ohio, great school. And then when the stock market crashed in, you know, uh, the 20s, I've heard, of, I heard about those, uh, wiped out the Williams family business. He had to quit school, come back to Evansville, take a job as a junior engineer in the mines. A few years later, when Robert Sr. became gravely ill, Rob unquestionably offered his, offered his own blood for transfusions until his father finally pulled a needle, needle out of his own arm and told his son, I don't want you to do this anymore. You've done enough. And then he died a short time later. Wow. Robin was not the only man in his family with a flair for uh, the dramatic. I got Rob and his first wife, Susan Todd Lawrence, had a son together in 1938. Robert Todd Williams, he'd go by Todd. He'll show up here and there in the Time Suck timeline today. Uh, just three years later, in 1941, Rob and Susan separated. Susan took Todd to live with her in Kentucky. And then Rob wouldn't be uh, around much for Todd's childhood. Uh, Rob and, uh, and Lori, Rob Williams' parents, I got a lot of questions about them being uh, good parents. A lot, of, a lot of concerns about how good of parents they were or were not. Anyway, uh, Rob was working for Ford as a plant manager when the U U.S. entered World War II. He enlisted the Navy, eventually became a lieutenant commander on the USS Ticonderoga, an aircraft carrier on the Pacific. On January 21st, 1945, while at sea near the Philippines, the Ticonderoga came under fire from Japanese kamikaze pilots, and one of these suicidal pilots crashed his Zero, his fighter plane, through the carrier's flight deck, managed to detonate a bomb in its hangar, destroying several stowed planes. More than 100 sailors were killed or injured in the attack. Rob himself was wounded when, according to family lore, he leapt in front of his captain to protect him from the expl explosion and took shrapnel on his back, legs, and arms. Holy shit. Leapt in front of his captain. I wish I could tell you whether or not he got a medal for that, but uh, I, can't, I can't figure it out. doesn't come up in his obituary and in interviews Rob gave about his dad or in the main source we use for this episode. A comprehensive biography on Robin Williams, just called Robin, uh, by Dave Itzkoff. Uh, due to injuries received in this explosion, Rob could uh, not be redeployed in combat. So now he took a government desk job back in Washington, D.C. Uh, soon he would return to work at Ford, gaining a new management position, and quickly ascending up the corporate ladder all the way to national sales director for the company's Lincoln Mercury division in Chicago. It was there in 1949 that Rob would meet his future second wife, Lori McLaurin Jannon. A blind double date at an upscale restaurant. Lori McLaurin. I kind of glossed over it the first time. What the fuck? Who came up with that name? Weird to have almost the exact same name as the first name, you know, and middle name, but with a Mick thrown in front of the second one, isn't it? That's like if I was like, Danny McDaniel, pleased to meet you. It, it can only be better if her last name was like Lorington, something else similar to Laura or Lori. Lori McLaurin Lorington. Nice to meet you. And yes, my parents are fucking insane. Uh, Lori was born in 1922 in Jackson, Mississippi. Raised in New Orleans, growing up immersed in the city's indulgent culture, lively parties thrown by her folks. What a wild and probably super fun childhood. Uh, heart goes out to everyone in New Orleans right now, by the way, dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. Thank God the levee held and the flooding was not severe. Uh, and there was not a lot of structural damage, but man, having your power out for, you know, weeks, possibly up to a month in certain neighborhoods, that's going to fuck your month up. Uh, I've known a few people who've grown up in New Orleans proper, and a lot of them have stories of getting into bars real young. Sometimes like as little kids, you know, with their parents, listening to live music, being a part of the partying that spills over from parades like Mardi Gras, you know, partying real young, just a very much a lively carpe diem kind of town. I love it. Seems to breed some fun, loving people. And Lori, before she passed in 2001, she sure seemed like she was, uh, uh, you know, fun. Maybe not the best mom in some ways, but, but, but fun. 
in other ways. I'll get into that later. Her parents' uh, marriage, mildly scandalous in a largely Catholic city she grew up in. Her father was Catholic. Her mom was Protestant. How sinful. The couple separated by the time Lori was five years old, divorced soon after that, leaving her to live with a scandalized and somewhat ostracized mom. The McLaurin family was descended from the McLaurin clan of Scotland. And Lori's great-grandfather, Anselm Joseph McLaurin, served as a captain in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, later elected U.S. Senator and Governor of Mississippi. Lori was essentially cut off from this aristocratic heritage when her mom remarried in 1929. Her new husband, Robert Forrest Smith, another Bob, another Rob Bob, uh, didn't have the same pedigree, didn't care about some version of American blue blood. He adopted Lori and he nicknamed her Punky, a nickname that stuck and one that she didn't like much as a kid. Uh, she said later, doors that would have been open to Lori McLaurin Jennon were slammed shut to Punky Smith. <laughs> uh, she would later take ownership of that nickname and ask her friends to call her Punky as an adult. Uh, she's not wrong about how a name, you know, can kind of change your, uh, well, you know, how life is going to treat you. You know, people definitely make assumptions based on names. Think about how many names I've made fun of here. Uh, if for whatever reason, I would have went by, you know, been nicknamed as a kid or something, Booger McWeasel instead of Dan Cummins. I'm going to have a different life. Booger McWeasel and Dan Cummins lead different lives. I'm in a different place today. I probably wouldn't have my kids. My ex-wife, for sure, a go-getter. She's not going to go on a date with Booger McWeasel. My wife, Lindsay, she wouldn't have taken a chance on Booger. Booger doesn't host a podcast centered primarily around learning something new and trying to be a decent person. I hope that comes through, the dick jokes and the dark humor. A Booger hosts a podcast. If he does host a podcast, it would be called like uh, Ball Sweat or uh, or Dingleberries and, and Jello Shots, you know? Yeehaw! Welcome to Dingleberries and Jello Shots. I'm your host, Booger McWeasel. And today we're going to be talking to Skate Skate A-Ball, a local rapper who also sells beef jerky on the side of Highway 61 next to the Rhinestones and Thongs Gentlemen's Club. Skate Skate! Skate Skate! Let's get into it! You know, that's that's Booger McWeasel's podcast. Probably went a little further than I needed to to illustrate <laughs> how people are going to make different assumptions about, you know, different names. Lori versus Punky there. I kind of want to listen to Dingleberries and Jello Shots now. That was really fun. I was I was sad that that ended. Booger McWeasel! It's the Weasel the McWeasel Squeasel! Talking about skate skate! Get out in here! That's kind of fun to do. Lori noticed that alcoholism was a big part of her family's life and that uh, drinking made her mother capricious. Growing up, I never knew when I woke up each day whether I was going to be Queen of May or Little Orphan Annie, she said. Uh, her blood father uh, was a drinker too. Made me realize that we cannot drink, Lori said. There were people in the family who rose to great heights and then boom, just like that. Uh, and it was from alcohol. If you can't handle it, just stay away from it. It's poison for our family. Uh, Robin will find out later that it was poison for him as well. Uh, when the Great Depression nearly wiped out the wealth of Robert Smith, it led to more than a decade of wandering for Lori's family. Uh, they spent uh, time shifting back and forth between New Orleans and Crowley, Louisiana, a small town, uh, just over 10,000 people, about 25 miles west of Lafayette. At one point, her stepfather considered uh, running an ice cream business. And for the first time in my life, she said, we didn't have a servant. I thought that was the end. Oh, oh my. They don't have a servant. It's the end of things. Uh, in her late teens, Punky moved to the 5,000-ish town of Past Christian, Mississippi, basically an outer suburb of the Gulfport, Biloxi metro area, and then back to New Orleans. In 1941, Lori took up residence in a boarding house uh, while her parents went on to Mobile, Alabama. For a time, she performed as an actress in the French Quarter. Robin's uh, later foray into the entertainment world was not breaking new ground inside of his immediate family. At the start of World War II, uh, she's working for the Weather Bureau in New Orleans when the Pentagon inquired if she spoke French. Fluently, she lied. She's a bit of a character. 
And then she was transferred to an office in Georgetown. In Washington, D.C., she met a young naval officer named William Musgrave. The two were married shortly before he shipped out to the South Pacific, now known as Lori McLaurin Musgrave. Punky Musgrave. She spent part of the war living in San Francisco, taking lithography classes, a style of printing, crossing paths with the likes of Franklin Lloyd Wright, Henry Miller. When the war ended and Billy Musgrave returned home, sounds like, a lot like Muskrat. <laughs> Billy Muskrat! This is my wife, Punky! Uh, they, they, I feel like they would be guests on the Booger McWeasel Podcast! Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the name. It wasn't, what was it? Oh, Dingleberries and Jello Shots. I know it's very important to get that right. Um, so yeah, so the war ends. Uh, Billy Musgrave returns home. The couple lives briefly in San Diego, then moves to Chicago, where he finds work as an electrical engineer. In 1947, Lori gives birth to their son, Lauren McLaurin Musgrave, uh, who'd be later known as McLaurin. What the fuck? She had to name her son after her? That's, I think it's weird. Uh, it's, it's weird when just either sex a parent does it. Especially when you have a name that, I don't know. Lauren McLaurin Musgrave, that's, that's ah, uh, whatever. In his infancy, he developed pneumonia. Lori later said she was fearful of the effects that a worsening Chicago winter might have on the child. She sent the baby McLaurin to live with her mother and stepfather in Mobile. And then Lori and William separated and divorced soon after. And then her mom and stepdad raised her and Billy's kid. Huh. Mm, I, don't, I don't love this. Uh, okay, he had pneumonia. I mean, that is scary. But, you know, I mean, he recovered from that. And recovered what I understand, fairly quickly. <laughs> and then she just didn't bring him back. You know, Chicago's too cold for a baby. That's like the most ridiculous rationalizing of just abandoning a child. Maybe I've ever heard. Uh, Lori, this is uncomfortable for me to say, but did you abandon your baby? No, how dare you? I just knew that there was no way a baby could survive a Chicago winter. And then cut to a scene of a whole bunch of fucking moms pushing their babies around Chicago's Lincoln Park in the, in the dead of winter. Uh, Punky believes she married too young. Now she was on her own. Two years later, she's working as a model for Marshall Field's flagship department store on State Street, downtown Chicago. She meets Rob Williams. That store is now the big flagship uh, Macy's on State Street. If you're in the Chicago area, Punky was smitten by him so deeply that she bought him an engagement ring and she proposed that they get married, which was very atypical over the time. Hail to Safina. I bet that engagement ring was accompanied, accompanied by some super hot sex. And of course, they did get married. June 3rd, 1950, the two were wed by Justice of the Peace in Omaha, Nebraska. And then they took their honeymoon at a fishing lodge in Hayward, Wisconsin. She was not a big uh, fisher, f fisherman, fisherwoman. Hayward, uh, not, the, not the place a lot of people think of when they think of honeymoons. It's a roughly 2,000 person town, about 1,500 people at that time. Not even on the coast of Lake Superior. It does have a little lake, Hayward Lake, in the center of town. And it's home to the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Not a resort town. It's a fishing town known for big muskies, pike, walleyes, smallmouth bass. It's the birthplace of J.R. Salzman. Champion log roller. It's a cool town if you love log rolling, hunting, fishing, other outdoor activities. Not exactly a romantic town. After the honeymoon, according to family legend, Punky told Rob, that was the lousiest honeymoon I've ever had. Love it. Interesting that both uh, Robin's mom and his dad both had a kid with someone else in a previous marriage and then just uh, didn't seem to make any effort at all into trying to help raise him. That's going to come up. Quite a few more times this timeline. Uh, the newlyweds moved into an apartment now in Chicago's north side. And on July 21st, 1951, Lori bought, uh, excuse me, Lori, Lori bought, Lori brought, important distinction here, Robin McLaurin Williams into the world. She loves throwing fucking McLaurin and uh, all the kids. Uh, Robin was a healthy baby and seemingly always happy. Punky uh, helped raise him when he was little. A uh, living nurse named Susie, or she had help raising him when he was little. A living nurse named Susie, according to Robin, wouldn't put up with anything, wouldn't take it. Very strong force. She helped raise, uh, you know, Robin. Shortly after Robin's birth, the family moved from Chicago to a rented house in Lake Forest. 
an affluent suburb about 30 miles north of the city. They were moving on up. I love that button. Mm-hmm. I wish I had that button just out in, out in the world, just out in life. You know, you're just, for whatever reason, you're having like a gray mental day. Then you can just like hit that, hey, we're moving on up. And it's just like, ah, oh, you just got a little pep in your step. Like, okay, okay. All right, I'm going now. Um, Robin was a mom's boy. He's a young lad. He felt his mom was uh, who first drove him towards comedy. He loved to make her laugh. He said, I tried to find things to make her laugh, doing voices or anything that would get a response out of her. His first impression was of his grandma, which his mom loved. He knew his relationship with his mom helped establish his relationship with a comedic performance, saying, what drives you to perform is the need for that primal connection. My mother was funny with me, and I started to be charming and funny for her. I learned that by being entertaining, you can make a connection with another person. Interesting. Uh, I don't know that I've ever thought of comedy that way, of my way of making a connection. But yeah, yeah, okay. I can see that's a part of it. You know, you want to be heard. Uh, sometimes I do feel like I communicate more honestly and effectively through stand-up than I do in regular life. I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I have a hard time getting my thoughts together. You know, with stand-up, I have the opportunity to uh, share those thoughts after really, you know, thinking about them for quite some time, and then they're not interrupted or derailed, usually. Uh, as for his father, Rob was not easily amused by Robin. I get that. My mom uh, has not always appreciated my sense of humor. Uh, Robin saw his father as a stern but ethical figure, gave him nicknames of reverence like Lord Posh, or simply the Posha, although he never used those names to his father's face. Uh, Robin may have gotten his legendary memory from Papa Williams. His dad was said to be able to scan a room and remember what everyone had been doing and even could remember everything that he heard them say later. Todd, Robin's older brother, spoke of their father's mind. It all went in and it stayed there. He never forgot anything anybody told him, unless selectively he did so. Todd knew of one other person who shared that ability, his half-brother Robin. He said that Robin could be in a room full of people where there are 10 conversations going on. He'll be talking to you, focused on you, but everything around him goes into that file. And I do remember hearing legendary stories about Robin Williams' memory the first few years I did stand-up, how he could supposedly read a script once and have all of his lines locked into his head. I'm sure stories are, you know, were exaggerated, but there were a lot of stories. Uh, tales of his legendary memory even tied into accusations that he stole other comics' jokes. His defenders would sometimes say that he just remembered everything he heard. Sometimes when, in, you know, improvising on stage and working through some stream-of-consciousness rant, you know, he'd just recall jokes that he just overheard somewhere that he didn't even necessarily remember where they came from and they'd come out or that he wasn't intentionally trying to rip them off. You know, he just forgot where he heard it. I, I, I would buy that that's entirely possible with a mind like he had. And we and, and I'll look further into that at the end of the episode, by the way, uh, more deeply into these accus, uh, accusations of joke thievery. Uh, sadly, in the end, one of the things that upset Robin the most was his memory failing with his LBD. He suddenly could remember his lines. That, you know, really bothered him. I'm sure it did. Uh, growing up, Todd worried uh, that his brother's memory would drive him into a loony bin, that he would just have too much in his head. Robin and his dad, Rob, uh, weren't exactly close growing up. One semi-consistent bonding moment for the father and son was watching The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. With frequent guest deadpan comedian Jonathan Winters, whenever he would appear, uh, young Robin would be allowed to stay up late and watch the episode with his dad. And that left a big impression on young Robin. In the first Winters appearance that Robin would later remember, Winters came strolling onto Parr's stage, dressed in a pith helmet, declared himself a great white hunter. I hunt mostly squirrels, he said. How do you do that? Parr asked. Winters replied, I aim for their little nuts. He deadpanned. Funnier when he does it. It was a special time for Robin to laugh along with his father. My dad was a sweet man, but not an easy laugh, Robin explained. Seeing my father laugh like that made me think, who is this guy? What's he on? Jonathan Winters was for sure a big influence on Robin's later stand-up, uh, as was Danny Kaye, a comedian billed as having a million voices. Uh, Winters was the main influence, a pioneer in improvisational stand-up. 
He was a gifted impressionist who could shift in and out of various personalities quickly, seemed to have endless, boundless energy. That would you know, be said about Williams later. Jack Parr famously said of Winters, if you, if you were to ask me the funniest 25 people I've ever known, I'd say, here they are, Jonathan Winters. I fucking love that. Williams would credit Winters as being his mentor and the two would actually get to work together on Mork and Mindy later. In Robin's mind, Winters was a master comedian who could make any stage his canvas, needing nothing more than a microphone and his boundless ingenuity. He was performing comedic alchemy, Robin would later say. The world was his laboratory. Uh, at some point during Robin's single-digit years, Robin's family would buy a stately home on Washington Road in Lake Forest, not far from Lake Michigan, in a big house in a neighborhood of fairly big houses, said Jeff Hodgkin, one of Robin's school friends. The house was set back off a shared driveway from another road, so it was almost mysterious. You'd walk through the trees and get to his house and go, wow, you live here? In 1961, when Robin was 10, still living there, he was introduced to his two older half-brothers. Fucking weird. Does not meet them for the first 10 years of his childhood. Why did that introduction take so long? His parents clearly had the money to visit their other children. What was going on here? The Papa Bear and me right now, ah, having a real hard time, not feeling super judgy. Feels like his folks abandoned their first kids. Uh, Todd was 23 years old at the time, lived in Chicago. He'd run away from home, or he had run away from home at 15. I was a dumb kid, Todd would later say. I played too much. As Robin recalled, Todd always extorted all my money. He'd come into my room and say he needed some beer money. I'd say, oh gosh, yes, take it all. My mother would get furious because Todd would get into my piggy bank and walk out with $40 worth of pennies. Now, maybe Todd would have been a little more stable if dad wouldn't have abandoned him. And apparently, uh, you know, uh, you know, just not, not been around during the overwhelming majority of his childhood. Dude stopped being a presence in uh, his life when Todd was three. Apparently didn't reconnect with Todd in any real way for 20 years. Yeah, that's, that's probably gonna have an adverse effect on someone's childhood. Uh, meanwhile, McLaurin, who again was Punky's older son, was still living in Alabama with Punky's mom and dad, uh, believing that they were his own parents. When Punky would visit from time to time, they let uh, him think that she was his cousin. However, when McLaurin turned uh, 13 or maybe 14, they shared a startling truth with him. Uh, he later said, they tell me that my very beautiful and drop-dead gorgeous cousin Punky is not my cousin. She's their daughter and my mother. What the fuck? Having a real hard time not getting judgy again. Telling the kid who was the baby she gave away, because Chicago was too cold, uh, essentially. I know it was a little more complicated than that, but not much. Uh, she was his cousin. I mean, if I'm going to make fun of Ted Bundy's family for doing something very similar, I have to make fun of Robin Williams' family, too. This just, just seems super fucked up. Especially when, again, they had plenty of money. Had plenty of it for over a decade at this point. Come on. Uh, McLaurin can now decide whether he wished to live up north with his mom, Lori, Robin, Robin, or stay in Alabama, let his grandparents adopt him. Rob invited him to spend time with the Williams family while he decided what to do. McLaurin immediately took to young Robin. We were both very private, solitary type individuals, he said. Both of us had this thing where we sometimes just like to be in our own heads. And he was very much that way. He was a wonderfully kind, gentle, sweet soul. I relate to this need to be alone and just be in your own head so much. The best part and the worst part of the pandemic uh, for me was being around my family all the time. I love him. I love spending time with him but I'd grown so accustomed to having a certain amount of time on the road to just be alone, get lost in my imagination, lost in my own thoughts, uh, you know, be surrounded by strangers who didn't want to talk to me. And that's what I always did as a kid a lot too. I'd, I'd play by myself in the room around the yard, read a book, work on Legos, create GI Joe battles on this little dirt hill in the, in the, behind the trailer, perfectly content, getting lost in my own imagination. And when, you know, I don't get a lot of that, I kind of short circuit a bit. I get real cranky. I don't feel myself. I feel like my batteries need to be recharged. Love hearing about uh, that someone else, you know, who made a living performing, someone who came across as such an extroverted person was actually similar. 
Uh, McLaurin was also impressed with Robin's vivid imagination, how he expressed it through his collection of toy soldiers. Despite the bond with Robin, in the end, McLaurin would choose to stay in Alabama and have his grandparents adopt him. I feel like this again, not the best endorsement of Punky and Rob, as warm and loving parents, at least when it came to their kids not named Robin. After spending a couple of days working on, uh, you know, all this research, I, I, I just kind of came away with an evaluation of just like, meh, regarding Robin's parents. Uh, Robin attended public elementary school in Lake Forest at Gordon Elementary School and then middle school at Deer Path Junior High School. As a seventh grader in Deer Path, Robin started using humor to ward off bullies. I started telling jokes in the seventh grade as a way to keep from getting the shit kicked out of me, he said. Fair. Uh, late 1963, when Williams was 12, his dad, who was uh, still bounding up the Ford corporate ladder, was transferred to Detroit. The family bought a big house in another affluent suburb at about 20 miles north of Detroit called Bloomfield Hills. They lived in a 40-room farmhouse on 20 acres. God dang. Holy shit. The sprawling man who was so large had a castle-like name, Stonycroft. Robin would spend a lot of time at home with his, par- uh, with his parents. Oh, I'm sorry. He would spend a lot of time at, at home without his parents. As his parents, Rob and Punky, would travel often for work or for leisure, and they would leave Robin behind. I didn't realize how lonely Robin had been, Punky would say many years later, but I had to be with Rob. I didn't trust him. Come on, don't be stupid. But Robin suffered, and I didn't realize that. He had some very lonely years. You think you're being a wonderful mother, but maybe you aren't. Yeah, I'm going to say you weren't being a wonderful mother, Punky. Uh, her rationalization of leaving her son at home with some uh, type of nanny, I'm guessing, to spend time with her husband because, you know, come on, don't be stupid. I couldn't trust him. He's going to fuck somebody else if I, you know, let him travel alone. Come on. That's a, I feel like that's a rationalization for being a shitty parent on par with, like, I, I had to give up my baby. And then have him raised by his grandparents who then think I'm his cousin. I mean, come on, Chicago winters. They're so, they're so cold for a baby. Ah, it's official now. Uh, I've, I, now I've moved. Now I've moved from meh to like I just don't like Punky or Rob. Uh, this doesn't seem like they should have kids. Robin would later say he didn't have any friends in the neighborhood because there were not other kids in the neighborhood. But he would find other ways to entertain himself. He said, "My imagination was my friend, my companion." It was in the giant third floor attic of the massive Stonycroft estate where Robin would be left alone to wage massive battles between his collection of toy soldiers, each with their own voices. Oh my god, I did the same thing with my GI Joes. Uh, they weren't plastic toys either, but you know, the more expensive metal ones. My world, he said, was bounded by thousands of toy soldiers with whom I would play out World War II battles. I had a whole panzer division, 150 tanks, and a board 10 feet by three feet that I covered with sand for Guadalcanal. Fucking love it. 10-year-old me just got very excited about that scenario. What is it about toy soldiers that makes so many little boys so excited to play with them? Is it instinctual? Because our ancestors waged so many wars? Is it in our blood? That still sounds cool to me. Uh, I'm not jealous of what it sounded to, to, to be like, or seems to be a fair amount of neglect, but the attic part of his childhood sounds awesome. Uh, the attic was also Robin's private rehearsal space where he'd mimic the routines of his favorite comedians after recording their sets on TV with his tape recorder. He studied their jokes, also their timing, tempo, cadence, and inflection. That's awesome. I did not do anything like that growing up other than with, uh, Eddie Murphy's Delirious. That was the only routine I memorized. Goona goo goo. Uh, George, George Carlin became my favorite later on, but growing up, Eddie Murphy was the only comic that I, I cared about as a, as a kid. To Robin, comedy was like a science. It could be studied, tested, perfected. The ultimate goal was a guaranteed laugh. He was an excellent student. Uh, he was a good student at the elite private Detroit Country Day School he now went to, founded in 1914. And this school's still around, and holy shit, it's, it, it's a wee bit spendy. Tuition is just under 26000 a year for grade schoolers. Uh, 32000 a year for middle schoolers and a little over 34000 a year for high schoolers. Then there's the cost of uniforms, field trips, athletic fees, books, supplies, etc. Not sure if food's included. For a non-boarding school, it's about as expensive as it gets. 
I can't find any uh, high school in Michigan that costs, or at least in Michigan, can't find any high school in Michigan that costs more per year that doesn't also provide boarding. Uh, Courtney Vance, current president of the Screen Actors Guild, and an award-winning actor who won an Emmy for his portrayal of Johnny Cochran in the FX critically acclaimed series The People vs. O.J. Simpson, another crime story, or American crime story, amongst many other roles in TV, film, and Broadway. He went to the school. So did Steve Ballmer, former longtime CEO of Microsoft, current owner of the Clippers. Uh, Seaman Knudsen, former president of Ford Motor Company, uh, a variety of senators, Supreme Court judges, NBA all-stars, NFL and NHL players, uh, et cetera, went to the school. The school's no fucking joke. Scott Seligman, founder of Sterling Bank and Trust, part owner of the San Francisco Giants, was one of Robin's classmates. Definitely speaks to the level of affluence he grew up uh, in and around. And I wonder what kind of burden being around that uh, class of student places on some people, right? I, I honestly feel so lucky in many ways to have gone to Salmon River High School you know, back in Riggins, my junior and senior year. Plenty of kids from Riggins do find success, but generally it's a more normal, attainable level of success. Like becoming a doctor, huge, big deal for a kid from Riggins. Becoming a lawyer, big deal. Jed Fitch, two grades above me. Became prosecutor for Beaver County, Montana. Uh, we're all very excited for him. Ryan Shaw, my classmate, buddy of mine from school, went to West Point, now is a college professor down in Arizona. Huge deal, very proud of him. Right? Everyone in town is becoming a nurse or a teacher, joining the military, getting a good steady job at a sawmill or metal fabrication shop, making a living as a river guide or a contractor, all big deals. You own a pizza shop, you hold down fucking any job that allows you to buy a home, any home at some point in your life and you're fucking crushing it. But if you went to the Detroit Country Day School and you end up working as a bank teller or a grocery store cashier, totally solid jobs that often pay a good wage, have great benefits. Do you have to fight feeling like a loser because your former classmates are not just working at Fortune 500 companies, they're fucking running them. They're not just lawyers. They're sitting on the Supreme Court. I am not envious of that kind of pressure. I guess you just try and, you know, make your peace with it. Uh, learn not to measure your success by anyone else's. Hard to do sometimes, but I do think that's the best mindset for happy life. Uh, anyway, this uber elite Detroit Country Day School, such a pedestrian name for such a fancy school. Robin wore a uniform that consisted of sports coats, sweaters, ties, slacks, and the school's navy and gold colors. All his classmates were boys. He found the classes to be uh, much more rigorous than his schools back in Illinois. It was a school designed to prepare students for prestigious, prestigious, that's probably how they say it there, prestigious colleges and for grooming future leaders. Robin even started to carry a briefcase classes. Hilarious. I've never carried a briefcase anywhere, unless I was joking. I once carried a briefcase full of uh, fake cocaine around downtown Spokane when I was about 22. Uh, a buddy a buddy and me, we dressed up in our job interview suits for like trying to get jobs after college. And we wandered uh, in and out of office buildings pretending to snort coke in the bathrooms and talking loudly about mergers, acquisitions, profits, liabilities. We had numerous security guards ask us to leave. It was a great day full of getting thrown out of various businesses and laughing until we cried. Totally forgot we did that until the briefcase detail triggered that memory. Uh, I feel like a young Robin Williams would have definitely joined us and had a great time and probably brought some uh, real coke to uh, up the ante. Despite how hard his new school was, Robin excelled in his schoolwork, was a solid athlete. He gave football a try for about a week. Uh, didn't stick with that, but he did excel in soccer and wrestling, especially in wrestling. He was a talented uh, young wrestler, went undefeated his freshman year. He loved the sport, relished the opportunity to take out your aggressions on somebody your own size. Uh, when he reached the Michigan State Finals, he was pitted against some kid from upstate Michigan who, as Robin put it, looked like he was 23 and balding. <laughs> uh, Robin would dislocate his shoulder uh, during this match and give up his wrestling dreams. Okay, I get it. Oh, I thought it was going to be some kind of Taekwondo master after just taking Taekwondo for three months. Then some kid, 30 pounds lighter than me, six inches shorter, uh, kicked me in the face, uh, fractured my cheekbone. And I was like, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe I'm going to retire early. 
Maybe not going to be the next Bruce Lee. Maybe don't have cat-like reflexes. Uh, while attending the posh school, Robin would insert levity in daily lunchroom speeches. Students were required to give by throwing in one-liners here and there. He loved the response he got. Most of the teachers were amused as well. Uh, this worked for him until one day he decided to try out a Polish joke, which his school's Polish-American assistant headmaster did not care for. He was asked to lay off the jokes. Hey, wait a minute. So you, uh, you weren't even supposed to make derogatory, stereotypical Polish jokes back in the mid-60s? <laughs> Awkward. I am way behind the times. Uh, Joe, please go back and whitewash all the Polish jokes from the back catalog. This should only take a, several weeks. Uh, during this time, Robin attended several bar mitzvahs a year, made some of his first Jewish friends, which would also influence him greatly. My friends made me an honorary Jew, he said later. I used to tell people I went to services at Temple Beth Dublin. It's a very Robin Williams joke here. Uh, let's bump up now to 1967. Robin is now 16. Robin's father, who impressively was paying for this lifestyle, had with only a high school diploma. Uh, he was consistently going toe-to-toe with younger MBAs who wanted his job, and he's getting sick of it. So he parted ways with the company in 1967. At the age of 61, took a pension. Uh, Robin would later characterize his father's departure from Ford as a forced early retirement. Uh, the arrangement, according to Punky, did not allow her husband to collect the full benefits he would have received if he would have stayed on a few years longer. Uh, guessing they still made out okay, though. In early 1968, Robin flourished during his junior year. Uh, he's on the honor roll. He served on its uh, prefect board, was elected to student council, was even voted class president for his upcoming senior year. He was excited about his future, about the you know possibility of attending an Ivy League school. But Papa Williams was ready to move again. And apparently he just couldn't wait 15 months or so to let the one kid he didn't abandon finish high school. What the fuck? So selfish. Rob wanted to go to Florida. Uh, but Punky then convinced him to move the family to uh, Tiburon, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he accepted a big wig job at First National Bank. So much for that retirement. Uh, so much for just not waiting, you know, 15 or so months. Maybe he couldn't get a job he wanted locally. I don't know. Maybe my gut is right, and he's kind of a piece of shit. And it didn't even occur to him that he should put his kids, kid first. Uh, so Robin now, not going to be student, you know, uh, or class president his, his senior year. Uh, you know, so that sucks. And, you know, he has to move again, leave all his friends right before he's finishing high school, go to a new school, leave the identity he just made for himself, you know, be the new kid once again. Man, moving, moving to high school sucks. I, I looked out, moved back to where I'd gone to, uh, you know, junior high between sophomore and junior year. But moving to a new high school across the country where you know no one, that's fucked up. I know sometimes it's unavoidable, like military moves and stuff, but this, is, this isn't that. This is somebody who had plenty of money, could have just waited a little bit, or, you know, he could have moved to uh, Tiburon and Punky could have stayed behind with Robin for, you know, 15 months or, you know, could have flown back and forth or they, they had plenty of money. They could have hired a fucking uh, nanny of some sort to just stay with him while he finished his school and could graduate there. Robin hated it. He hated moving. Uh, each time he arrived in a new city or new school, he felt awkward uh, on display. I was always a new boy, he once said, and that makes you different. Before we make the jump to California, the pace of our story is going to pick up there. Let's take a quick sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. 
This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs, Hero Croissant, or the one gram of net carbs, Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. 
Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now we're back. The spring of 1968. Robin is preparing to spend the end of his junior year in a uh, new state where he knows no one because his dad's a prick. Tiburon, very prosperous peninsula town in uh, Marin County, California. It sits on the northern side of the Golden Gate Bridge, reaching south into San Francisco Bay. This place is gorgeous. It's stupid affluent. I watched a travel vlog video showcasing Tiburon just to get the pronunciation right. I ended up watching the whole fucking video and wanted to move there. Very pretty seaside community. 2006, made a Forbes list ranking number 18 in the most expensive real estate markets in the U.S. Probably not going to move there. Uh, the median income for a family there is 149000 almost twice the national average of 79900 It has only around 10,000 residents, uh, only 6,000 when the Williams family moved there, but all the amenities of a larger size city, including its own film festival, ample upscale restaurants, shopping, wine tasting, you know, and vineyards. You know, I mean, it's just outside San Francisco. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge from Tiburon, uh, the San Francisco skyline, uh, downtown skyline, a 15-minute drive into San Francisco, or if you have a boat, you know, only seven or eight miles, it's about a 20-minute ferry ride. One of the most expensive and exclusive places to live in the notoriously expensive San Francisco area with a Mediterranean-like climate, sloping hills, lots of waterfront access. Again, very scenic. Uh, along with his duties for First National Bank, Rob started a management consultant business and amused himself with fishing trips. He bought a, he bought a couple of Monterey Clipper fishing boats that he loved. Punky began attending services at the local Christian Science Church, seemed to fit into the new community well. Robin had a harder time adjusting. He went from a conservative town to an incredibly liberal area uh, where it seemed like everything was permissible. Once again, here in the suck, we have made it to the Bay Area during the counterculture revolution of the late 1960s. It's not intentional. We just keep ending up. It's just what Lucifina wants. She wants us here. Uh, it probably would have been easier for me to move to Mexico, Robin later said. I had total culture shock. It was, a Red, it was at Redwood High School where that culture shock would be the most obvious. Uh, Detroit Country Day School, Redwood High School, about as different as they got. Redwood was a public school, uh, still affluent and well-funded, but public school. And it was co-ed, which Robin, you know, stoked about, of course. Uh, he did not make a great first impression on his classmates there. He went to school dressed like he did back at his private school in Michigan. You know, like a nice, like nice business attire and the briefcase. And that did not go over well. His new classmates mocked him on day one, you know, calling him, you know, various versions of fucking nerd. <laughs> one declared he was creating negative energy. Oh my God. 1960s in the Bay Area. Someone, uh, you know, should have given him a heads up. Told him to trade the briefcase in for a dime bag. Maybe trade in his stuffy clothes for a Led Zeppelin concert tee, some faded blue jeans. Real quick, Robin learned to uh, loosen up. Started wearing jeans. Then someone changed his life forever by giving him his first Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> he became known for wearing those for much of his career. Uh, once he settled in, he said, uh, I was gone. I got into a whole wild phase and I learned to totally let go. You know, he didn't want to move to California, but California turned him into the free-spirited wild man that would make him famous. He continued to play sports, playing for Redwood's varsity soccer team and running cross country, but also started to do the Bay Area thing and experiment with drugs, you guys. Like the devil's lettuce. Dr. Carroll has been called merely as a character witness. Well, then, although you didn't know to your own knowledge that the defendant was using marijuana, did you notice... Any changes that would lead you to believe, as an educator, mm -hmm. that he was under some severe mental strain, which mm. might possibly have been induced by some drug. Mm -hmm. Yes, I recall distinctly a few weeks ago, 
It was during a class of English literature. Yes. There was a serious discussion of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Uh-huh. When he suddenly burst into an uncontrollable fit of hysterical laughter. Oh, God. Oh, by the way, Dr. Carroll, six months ago, what would have been your opinion regarding the character of my client? Mm-hmm. He was a fine, upstanding American boy. Yes. A good scholar. Mm-hmm. A good athlete. Yes. And representative of the caliber of young men we are proud to do it from our school. God, but then the weed got him. He was a fine, upstanding young man. But then the devil's lettuce got him, and now he's being tried for murder. Oh, thanks to marijuana. That was a scene from the classic 1936 anti-marijuana propaganda film, Reefer Madness. Uh, scholastically, despite his marijuana abuse, Robin found himself once again in the honor roll. Started to do a, a bit of acting. Performed in the school's satirical fare- farewell play, uh, by the time he graduated in the spring of 1969, at the end of the peace and love decade, he was voted most likely not to succeed <laughs> ah, and funniest by his classmates. Well, they got one of those right. On uh, the summer of 69, the summer of 69, oh yeah, uh, Brian Adams just came in my head out of nowhere. Apparently, I can't say summer of 69 without hearing that song. Robin's half-brother Todd's back in his life again. Todd recently been discharged from the Air Force. Uh, where he'd spent four years bouncing around posts in Greenland, Panama, Oklahoma, Mississippi. Uh, after the military, he then worked as a soil engineer in Ohio. And uh, now he came to California because it's probably not fun to be a soil engineer in Ohio. He became a proprietor of bars and restaurants, probably more fun. I drank, Todd explained, and having a saloon was the easiest way to handle that. Fair. Robin would help Todd fix up a San Francisco night spot called Mother Fletcher's for minimum wage. Mother Fletcher's, that sounds fun. Uh, $1.65 an hour at the time. Robin also spent part of the summer after his high school graduation working at the Trident. This place sounds like a lot of fun. A uh, restaurant and music club in Sausalito. Oh, Sausalito. Alito. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Apparently I'm a fucking songbird today. That was Boss Gags. Didn't expect that either. Uh, Sausalito was uh, owned by the members of the Kingston Trio. Kingston Trio were an American folk and pop music group that helped launch the folk revival of the late 50s to late 60s. They have all sorts of number one records. Not necessarily for me, but that, that's fine. You know, uh, I don't like everybody. Uh, here's a little taste of one of their many, many songs. These guys uh, put out a preposterous amount of albums. Literally counted 60, or no, it's not 60, 40, but still, 40 albums on Wikipedia. Uh, this is a song called The Greenback Dollar. Oh, it's a dead pumpkin Halloween, you guys. Oh, no. Uh, that's Dead Pumpkins by the Insane Clown Posse. That's not even close to the right song. I don't know. I don't know what made me want to play that song, but something did. I don't get it. I, mean, I know. I know. <laughs> I know they've been very successful. The ICP. I know. I know we have some fans, some, uh, some, some juggalos. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Um, this is the Kingston Trio's The Greenback Dollar. And I don't give a damn about a greenback a dollar. Spend it fast as I can. For a wailing song and a good guitar. The only things that I understand. Oh okay. boy, the only things that I understand. Great harmonizers. Uh, for a folk trio, they took a pretty strange hippie New Age Hooters approach to the restaurant business. Uh, their, their restaurant had a uniquely Californian menu of organic food uh, with esoteric names. Robin said the waitresses, quote, wore spray-on two-piece macrame outfits, 
Ah, they look like a pair of socks. It was like, Sonia, your nipple's hanging out. And she'd say, I know, I'm trying to get tips. Oh, the Bay Area, 1969. Are you fucking kidding me? What a time to be young and single. Holy shit. Uh, in the fall of 1969, Robin left the Bay Area, headed south, began his freshman year at Claremont Men's College on the eastern edge of Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, near Ontario, where he planned to study to become a foreign service officer. Foreign service officer. I'm just saying this because I didn't know. Uh, the U.S. currently employs about 8,000 of them. Is a commissioned member of the U.S. Foreign Service. They work at uh, like foreign embassies, consulates, work with foreign economic agencies on economic issues, foreign policy, uh, work with American citizens overseas, helping with adoptions or, you know, evacuating them from disaster. They do all sorts of shit overseas, mostly working at embassies or consulates uh, or on other diplomatic missions. So he, so he wanted to see the world. He was thinking about it. This was an occupation that Robin felt neatly split the difference between his desire to do something exotic and his father's insistence that he choose a respectable profession. Claremont was a school whose students were expected to follow traditional white collar career paths. Anybody that went to Claremont was expected to go into business or law or politics, said Dick Gale. Oh, Dick Gale. That's a solid name. Oh, it's a windy day. It's a windy day. There's a dick in the air. Dick Gale. He was two years ahead of Robin. That was the main thrust of Claremont's men's college. He said you were expected to take that shit seriously. Do something with it. If you weren't political science or an econ major, somehow you were missing the boat. Uh, Robin was seen as someone who did not uh, really fit in at Claremont. Uh, he just needed to go there, though, to figure out what he wanted to do partially by learning what he didn't want to do. It was this weird catharsis, he would later say of Claremont. Total freedom, like going from Sing Sing to a gasalt nudist camp. Everything opened up. The whole world just changed in that one year. While at Claremont, Robin played soccer, lived at Burger Hall. Uh, the residents of this hall called themselves Sons, Sons of Burger, SOBs. He also was uh, reintroduced to his former middle school girlfriend, Christy Platt, who now was a sophomore at nearby Pfizer College. So small world. They met in Chicago, now reconnected east of L.A. Uh, they started to date again. Also, Robin was dating several other girls on campus at the same time. It was a college campus in California in 1969 and 1970. Monogamy, not trending for those of that age at that time. He later explained, I had one or two steady girlfriends in high school, but then in college, it was three, four. I went crazy. <laughs> uh, at one point, I had three separate girlfriends running around mad. Let's make love in a car. Women, he said, were amazing creatures. You can never learn enough. They're addicting in the most amazing sense. Hail, Lucifina. They are pretty addicting. Glad I got one who always keeps me on my toes. Uh, while at Claremont, Robin uh, took a theater class where he said, after my first day, I was hooked. I'm pretty surprised he hadn't taken any, you know, theater classes before this. He had, he had done some high school productions, I believe, but not actual classes. Uh, he he took what happened uh, to be an improv class that was headed up by a talented woman named Dale Morse, who had trained some of the leaders in improv comedy during the 60s, including being a member of a fairly well-known known improv group called The Committee, uh, and a San Francisco spinoff of Chicago's Second City. Eventually, Morris told her students that it was not enough to take her class as an academic exercise. They had to form a company of their own, start performing for audiences. So Robin and 18 of his classmates created a group known as Karma Pie. <laughs> uh, his first comedy troupe. Twice a week, they'd perform on campus. This is the beginning of the Robin the world would so soon come to know. We'd stand in line in the back, and if you had an idea, you would step out and start, or maybe you'd try to save the other actor. Bob Davis, a friend and fellow performer, said, it made for such a com made for such a camaraderie because you were out on stage with absolutely nothing to help you except the other person. It's high-risk theater. We weren't necessarily like other companies where it's all about finding a funny bit and then repeating that funny bit. We might go for 20 minutes all unified around a question from the audience or some kind of theme. We disdained being funny in a high-tone way. We're doing art here. Okay. His fellow performers all knew that Robin was doing something special. 
he was doing art and being very funny. He, he stood out in a way that was undeniable because this became a bit of a celebrity around school. When he and his girlfriend, Chrissy Platt, would go to parties, she said, people would just start clapping when we came in. It definitely wasn't because of me. He just had charisma and an original sense of humor. It's fucking awesome. Occasionally, his motor mouth charm uh, could be too much for some. I get it. When he came to my dorm, people went a little nuts, Platt said. Uh, they'd go, can we get him to be quiet? I used to have a blanket that I put over his head to tell him to be quiet. And of course, he was completely irrepressible, and that didn't work at all. Uh, Robin began to work outside of Karma Pie by performing in campus productions of Under Milkwood, playing the blind sailor Captain Cat and Dylan Thomas's drama about a fictional Welsh fishing town, and Alice in Wonderland playing a hookah-smoking caterpillar, also chose to be part of a comedy event that some of his uh, upperclassmen had been creating. He was so good that the leaders of the group started to throw challenges at him. One of their favorites was to see if there was any character he couldn't play at the drop of a hat. We started challenging him, said Al Dauber, one of the organizers. Do a bohemian priest. Do an orthodox rabbi. rabbi. Do a peasant out on the farm with his crops. Robin came through every time, he said. You couldn't keep up with his mind. It was going so fast. He was going off on all these tangents. On the evening of February 21st, 1970, the trio put on what was officially billed as An Evening with Al Dauber, co-starring Dick Gale and Rob Williams. It's a free show at McKenna Auditorium. Things were going great for Robin. He found his voice and a passion, uh, you know, that he could dedicate countless hours to. But for the first time in his life, uh, he stopped caring about his schoolwork. And his grades slipped the point of him flunking out on some classes. He would later say that his final paper in a macroeconomics course had only one sentence that said, I really don't know, sir. I love that so much. He just knew that macroeconomics was not for him and sabotaged any possibility of pursuing a real degree there. Papa Williams didn't fucking care for this. When he saw that F, he refused to give Robin any more tuition money. After just one year, Robin comes back now to uh, live back at home in Tiburon. To his classmates, the move is very abrupt. He was just gone. Quickly afterwards, the legend emerged that Robin was actually kicked out of school for driving a golf cart to the dining hall. That does not seem to be true. So now what? While the Vietnam War was raging, Robin was coming to the coming uh, to the age of being drafted, but his draft number was 356, a very unlikely number to be called, so he felt safe. He would later say, the Viet Cong had to be coming from Kansas for me to be drafted. Robin's dad was also candid about his experience in war with his son and urged him uh, not to volunteer for the military. Robin did not want to enlist. He wanted to act. He told his parents about this dream. Robin would tell his father's response to this declaration many times in his life. Papa Williams simply said, it's fine to have a dream, but you'd better learn a skill, like welding, just in case. It's actually more supportive than I expected his dad to be. Uh, Robin, indeed, was encouraged to learn to weld. He gave it a shot, and his welding apprenticeship lasted two whole days. He was warned that if safety precautions were not followed, a welder could go blind, and Robin didn't feel like that was worth the risk, so he just didn't go back. Uh, his mom was much more supportive of the acting idea than his dad was. Punky, not quite a shitty mom at this time. Maybe she's better with adult kids. Better late than never, I guess. Uh, Robin moved back home now, studied at, yeah, like I said, uh, studied at a nearby public community college called the College of Marin near Tiburon in Kentfield, California, the Mariners. The drama program at his new school uh, was very new, established in 1964, but it was starting to get attention and was actually getting compared to San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater. His director was a man named James Dunn, not the golden era big Hollywood film actor, James Dunn. Uh, this James Dunn was a Marine Corps veteran who was a drill uh, instructor during the Korean War. Despite his penchant for discipline, including making his students march and salute, he was also a playful man, known for taking classic texts and turning them into comedies. Uh, maybe he's a little bit of inspiration for Robin's role later in Dead Poet Society. Robin loved the discipline, recognizing he needed some, and he quickly became a star there. He started to get his earliest reviews from Daily Independent Journal based out of San Rafael. 
they were almost all glowing for him, even if the reviews of the plays weren't always great. In 1971, Robin was among the College of Marin students invited to perform uh, Dunn's Western-style production of The Taming of the Shrew at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland, billed as the world's largest art festival. Uh, their performance uh, won a first prize. Uh, they were asked to play uh, a command performance for Princess Margaret, sister of Queen Elizabeth II. Princess Margaret, so pleased, she asked Queen Elizabeth to give Robin a special diamond from her general jewelry collection. Robin would uh, wear a royal bracelet or a penis bracelet for the rest of his life. Call back to last week if you're so confused right now. Uh, also, bracelets, not a thing, at least by not by that name. But you can buy penis bracelets on Etsy and other places. Didn't know that. Uh, they have quite a selection of cock bracelets on Etsy. Not even kidding. It's the anniversary gift. You didn't know you needed it. Uh, Robin got a lot of local recognition in 1972 when he was cast as a member uh, or as the master pickpocket Fagin in the college's Christmas time production of Oliver. The crowd loved it. And the story goes that when Dunn at last got home at 2 a.m., he woke up his wife to tell her, I saw a young man do something tonight I've never seen before. This kid is going to go somewhere. Robin was now more hooked on acting than ever. In the review of Oliver, the Daily Independent Journal wrote, the big star of the evening is Robin Williams as an unforgettable Fagin. It's a real tour de force performance. It's been a great pleasure over the past year to watch this young collegian develop his talents into such a professional status. After nearly three years at the College of Marin, a school from which uh, most students move on after two years, Robin is now craving further instruction, and Dunn has a pathway in mind for Williams. Some summers earlier, Dunn had befriended John Houseman, the distinguished British-American actor, collaborator of Orson Welles, uh, now in charge of the newly established drama division of the prestigious Juilliard School in New York. It was this uh, very same year that Houseman actually would win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in the film Paper Chase. And at Dunn's recommendation, Robin performed an audition for Houseman and two colleagues from the Juilliard faculty, Michael Kahn and Elizabeth Smith. Uh, they evaluated candidates in San Francisco in 1973. Robin, now 22, uh, also broke, uh, reaches out to his parents. His father reluctantly gives him 50 bucks so he can take part in this tryout. A voice and speech teacher recalled Robin's tryout as somewhat clumsy but also irresistible. Uh, they said, I remember thinking he didn't speak very well. By that, I mean sort of carelessly. But he certainly had a personality. He seemed funny and very bright. He was accepted into Juilliard that fall with a full-ride scholarship. I love that he chose to go to Juilliard and learn more about acting at 22 as opposed to zipping down to L.A. to become a star, to become famous. Uh, he took his craft seriously. He didn't just want to be famous. He wanted to be good. I respect the shit out of that approach. Uh, had he not gotten that full-ride scholarship, he wouldn't have been able to attend Juilliard. His dad was not going to pay his son's tuition. Not for acting school, not for a fake school. According to Robin, his parents didn't uh, help financially at all with Juilliard. What a couple of assholes. Juilliard is arguably the best performing arts school in the world. And they couldn't support him because it wasn't the proper job that daddy wanted. Uh, Robin may have been uh, born into a lot of money, but his parents sure didn't use that money to support his performance career. He seems to have done most of that on his own. 1973, it's off to New York City for 22-year-old Robin. What a welcome to New York he had during his first week in Manhattan. He's riding a public bus. A few rows ahead of him, he sees a man slump over under the woman that man was sitting next to. Get off me, she shouts as she changes seats. Turns out the dude was dead. Driver stopped the bus, told everyone to exit the vehicle. Robin, a happy-to-help kid from the West Coast, said he wanted to stay and help out. And the, uh, apparently, the driver told him, quote, he's dead, motherfucker, now get off. You can't, <laughs> you can't do shit for him, so take your raggedy California ass and get out of my bus. God, I hope that happened exactly as Robin remembered it. Uh, uh, William was part of the Juilliard School's Group 6 from 1973 to 1976. Uh, they, they've had so many good actors come out of this school. Val Kilmer, Doc Amiel Huckleberry, 
Holiday from Tombstone would be a part of Group 10 at Juilliard some years later. One of so many successful actors, actresses to go there. Uh, Robin was one of just 20 students accepted into the freshman class, one of only two accepted by John Houseman into an advanced program. The other was Christopher Reeve. I don't know if you remember that name. Christopher became famous first for playing Superman in 1978 in the film of the same name and then played Superman in his three sequels. Holy shit, I love me some Christopher Reeve as a small child. You should try and imitate him by wearing a towel as a cape, a bobby pin holding it around my neck. I'd imitate flying by, uh, you know, flying by throwing myself on the coffee tables, trying to slide down uh, these coffee tables. It was, it was Superman and the Great American Hero. Those are my dudes. Tragically, Christopher Reeve later became mostly known for breaking his neck after getting thrown from a horse in an equestrian competition in 1995 and becoming paralyzed from the shoulders down at the age of just 43. Back in 1973, the 21-year-old Reeve became close friends with Robin Williams, took a lot of classes with him. Uh, William Hurt, uh, Mandy Patinkin, also some classmates. Classmates. Hurt would later win an Oscar for Best Actor for Kiss the Spider Woman. Hurt's been nominated for four Academy Awards. Uh, he plays General Thaddeus E. Thunderbolt Ross in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, Mandy Patinkin, he's been in all sorts of stuff. He played one of my favorite film characters of all time, Enigio Montoya, in Rob Reiner's 1987 cult classic, The Princess Bride. God, that's one of my fucking favorite scenes ever. My name is Enigio Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. My name is Enigio Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that. Uh, so good. So many good roles have been played by Juilliard Gretz. Uh, Williams also studied with future sitcom superstar Kelsey Grammer. Right, started off in Cheers. Got his own sitcom later. He was roommates with Franklin Seals, who's best known as Dexter Stuffins from the sitcom Silver Spoons. Uh, it would be Christopher Reeve that would become one of Robin's closest friends during his career there. I'd never seen so much energy contained in one person, Reeve said. He was like an untied balloon <laughs> that had been inflated and immediately released. I watched in awe as he virtually uh, caromed off of the walls of the classrooms and hallways. To say that he was on would be a major understatement. Oh, man. Uh, Williams and Reeve had a class in dialects taught by Edith Skinner, a voice consultant to the stars, who was one of the world's leading voice and speech teachers. And according to Reeve, Skinner was bewildered by Williams, who could instantly perform in a variety of accents, Scottish, Irish, English, Russian, Italian, whatever. Uh, by now, Williams and Reeve called each other brother. They would sit together, drink cheap wine, talk for hours into the night. Picture Robin, probably doing most of the talking. Uh, many of our classmates related to Robin by doing bits with him, attempting to keep pace with his antics, Reeve said later. I didn't even try. Occasionally, Robin would need to switch off and have a serious conversation with someone, and I was always ready to listen. Uh, their primary acting teacher was Michael Kahn, who was equally baffled by this human dynamo. Kahn actually wasn't a big Williams fan. He criticized his antics as simple stand-up comedy. Oh, boy. He didn't think Williams was suited for the school's advanced, more sophisticated training. I hate this attitude some theater types have towards stand-up. Uh, that stand-up is less than. It's, a little, it's the dirty little brother of uh, comedic acting. You know, people who feel that a, a gifted comedic actor is slumming it somehow if they end up uh, doing stand-up. I attended an improv workshop in Los Angeles with Gary Austin, the founder, original director of the Ground, Groundlings when I was just barely getting into stand-up, like no more than a year in. Flew down from Spokane for a two-day intensive uh, weekend workshop, and he tried talking me out of stand-up. Right, to talk me into pursuing sketch comedy because he felt the world of stand-up humor was base, crude, and simple. That the energy was dark. And he uh, fucking nailed it! But I love the honesty of this dark little world of men. So fuck him. Uh, in addition to Michael Kahn, who would end up in the American Theater Hall of Fame, actually. Uh, he was honored there by Queen Elizabeth II. She kept coming up again in this one. Uh, for his work producing Shakespeare plays, there were several other Juilliard staff members who felt Robin didn't fit in. 
Referencing Queen Elizabeth again uh, does lead pretty pretty uh, smoothly into one more sponsor for this episode. Uh, one I think that Robin Williams would find very amusing. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by the Crown Jewels Jewelers, Queen Elizabeth's Clit Clips, and more. Hello, I'm Lord Mortimer, head jeweler for the Crown Jewels Jewelers, Queen Elizabeth's Clit Clips, and more. I'd like to share some of our newest items with you, such as the Prince's Kiss, an insertable blue crystal orb with a 14-carat black diamond encrusted ring dangling from a 3-inch 14-carat gold chain. For him or for her. Sure to leave you feeling regal as you stand nude in front of your romantic admirer. Also, we have the Duchess Delight. A handcrafted women's caressing swan triple teardrop dangler g-string in 24-carat white gold with amethyst, amethyst accent stones and a 5-carat princess cut sapphire centerpiece. Guaranteed to put some extra bling in the bedroom. Finally on sale this week, 20% off the Westminster Twins, a pair of matching sterling silver labia rings highlighted by three-carat moonstones. May your sexual subjects bow before you. When you want your genitals to feel like royalty, you simply must dress them up like the queens. Keep calm, carry on, and bedazzle your bollocks and beaver. God save the queen, and long live the crown jewels jewelers. Uh, that advertisement kind of makes sense. Right? Maybe listen to last week's suck. Uh, okay. Uh, back to Juilliard. <laughs> ah, silliness. Uh, back to Juilliard and Williams being told acting, uh, you know, by acting professor Michael Kahn and others that, you know, he didn't really fit the mold uh, of the classical actor they preferred. Uh, soon after hearing this in a later production, Williams would silence many of his theater critics with a well-received performance as an old man in Night of the Iguana. The Night of the Iguana uh, by Tennessee Williams. He simply was the old man, uh, wrote Reeve later. I was astonished by his work and very grateful that fate had thrown us together. Uh, during the summers of 1974, 1975, and 1976, Williams returned home to California, worked as a busser back at the Trident in Sausalito, probably uh, enjoying working with those scantily clad waitresses again. Also did a lot of running. He was part of New York City's Westside YMCA Runners Club, uh, showed promising results with a 34-21 minute uh, you know, time at a 10K run in Central Park in 1975. Uh, he was also broke. His parents were serious about not helping him. Robin didn't have much money. He was often borrowing cash from his friends, even found himself relying on the kindness of the school's faculty. There are many stories of Juilliard staff, including teachers and even the janitor, taking pity on Robin, letting him sleep on couches in the drama theater, bringing him food to eat. Mom and dad really not going to make his attempt at making it as an actor easy for him. He had to earn it. I don't know. Maybe they were right to do this. And who knows? It is such a rough business. I mean, if you're going to make it, you need a thick skin. You need to show some grit and tenacity. That doesn't come from having someone, I guess, you know, always toss you money when you're down. I don't know. Uh, Robin was poor but happy. Uh, his active sex life seemed to help him in that regard. Uh, his roommates got mad at him for having loud sex on a bed, not separated by walls that reached the ceilings, I guess, uh, fairly regularly. Hail, Lucifina. In the summer of 1974, Williams' buddy Christopher Reeve is cast in the popular CBS soap opera, Love of Life, and is given permission to take a leave from the school. Robin is pumped for his handsome friend, this role will lead to other roles, will set Reeve on a path to stardom, and he'll never return to complete his Juilliard training. Meanwhile, Robin falls in love with the woman he'd met who, like him, had recently moved to New York from California. Though he never gave her name publicly, he described her as a free spirit who thought nothing about walking through tough neighborhoods wearing white lace gowns. I told her that if she kept it up, she'd get killed, and she said, no, my aura will defend me. I'm not sure life works that way, but, you know, whatever. She sounds fun. Maybe not stable, but fun. 
I'm going to guess she was responsible for some of those sex sounds his roommates heard. I have a feeling that the uh, My Aura Will Defend Me lady was wild in bed. In the summer of 1975, uh, between Robin's second and third years at Juilliard, but he was uh, pretty pretty interesting in the bedroom as well. Uh, he and his new powerful aura, uh, having girlfriend, returned to California, where the love affair became more passionate. But then Robin, uh, when he returned to New York that, that fall, she didn't come back with him and their separation brought him down. I really missed my lady friend that I began running up a $400 a month telephone bill. At the time, I was having trouble just making the rent, he said. The tension of a long-distance romance was such a drain. Ah, young, sexually-fueled love, so intoxicating. Robin left Juilliard during his junior year in February of 1976 when he was 24 at the suggestion of Hausman, who, as the legend goes, said there was nothing more Juilliard could teach him. Gerald Friedman, another one of his teachers at Juilliard, said that Williams was a genius and that the school's conservative and classical style of training just didn't suit him. No one was surprised when he left. It was yet another endeavor that left him without a degree, but at least he knew where he wanted to be and what he wanted to do now. He wanted to be back in the San Francisco Bay Area working as a stand-up comic. He began performing stand-up comedy in the San Francisco Bay Area in March of 1976. I love this. He gave his first performance at a place called the Holy City Zoo, a place where the guy who'd gotten a full ride to Juilliard started working as a bartender. Back to the bottom, showbiz. Showbiz doesn't uh, often care what your academic transcripts say. It's a humbling business. The Holy City Zoo was uh, located at 408 Clement, Clement Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in San Francisco's Richmond District. I've been through San, San Francisco many times doing shows, but uh, almost always doing shows in the Embarcadero. Never where this club was. Holy City Zoo was a tiny, dark cavern. Maximum occupancy of just 78 people. Primarily had folk music performances until the late 70s. Uh, sold uh, you know beer, wine, soft drinks. It was a small stage set against the back wall. Uh, a few st uh, stairs stage left led to a small balcony known as the John Wilkes Booth. The Holy City Zoo called itself the Comedian's Clubhouse. Man, I bet that place was fucking fun in the 70s. So many late night parties, so many laughs, you know, so much pure, uh, live like there's no tomorrow joy. Probably quite a bit of cocaine. Uh, Hail Nimrod and Lucifina, I bet her presence was felt pretty strong there. Robin used Holy City Zoo, such a great name also, as his own private rehearsal space. Little spot sounds like an amazing place to figure out your voice as a comic and really work out a lot of material. Robin quickly was able to pack the small house, even on a Tuesday open mic night. He started to build his legend outside the walls of acting academia. Bay Area entertainment critic Gerald Bachman wrote, In the 1960s, San Francisco was a center for rock music renaissance, hippies, drugs, and a sexual revolution. And in the late 70s, Williams helped lead its comedy renaissance. Man, so many stand-up giants would get going in San Francisco or at least uh, spend a significant amount amount of time there early on. Uh, many of them at the Holy City Zoo, like A. Whitney Brown, Blaine Capatch, Dana Carvey, Margaret Cho, Will Durst, Ellen DeGeneres, Bobcat Goldway, Dana Gould, Jake Johansson, Patton Oswald, Lori Kilmartin, Mark Marin, Aisha Tyler, The Amazing Jonathan, Larry Bubbles Brown, and on and on. Williams says he found out about drugs and happiness during this period. Added that he also saw the best brains of my time turn to mud. Too much drugs. Uh, all good things in moderation, especially drugs. Uh, drugs can play so much rougher with some than others. I'm all for legalizing them, but also for advocating that, you, uh, you know, you probably should maybe not do a lot of them. <laughs> they get along with me, but they don't get along with a lot of other people. Uh, and some get along with me. I'm not going to fucking go crazy on meth or heroin or something. 1976, William Starr really began to rise when he was named a finalist in the first international open stand-up comedy competition held at Joe Nabriga's Showcase, a nightclub in San Francisco. Uh, the competition became known later as the San Francisco International Comedy Competition. And it would run every year from 1976 until COVID shut it down in 2020. Williams took runner-up in 1976 to Bill Farley. Poor Bill, 
He later retired from stand-up, haunted by, uh, uh, you know, beating Robin Williams. That was basically his main claim to fame is that how did this guy beat Robin Williams? Poor bastard. SNL, Wayne's World's uh, Dana Carvey would win the competition the next year in 1977. Will Durst would win in 1983. I would open up for him at Punchline in San Francisco over 20 years later. Jake Johansson won in 1986. I opened up for him in Tampa. Uh, the uh, Tampa Improv about 20 years later. Man, I had some great times drinking and getting goofy with him that weekend. Uh, Carlos Elizraki from Reno 911. He won in 1993. Opened up for him in Omaha a little over 10 years later. Also had a blast during and after the shows. Mark Marin took second that year. Patton Oswald took fifth. Doug Stanhope, one of my favorite comics, won in 1995. Dane Cook was the runner-up that year. David Crowe, the first comic to take me along on the road as an opener. He won in 1996 and on and on and on. I've worked with a ton of past winners. Uh, I competed in 2003. Didn't quite make the finals after uh, finishing as the uh, runner-up in the competition, sister competition, the Seattle International Comedy Competition in 2002. Rob Pugh won San Francisco the year I competed. Great dude. Funny guy. Still touring up in Canada. Uh, John Fox, the promoter for all these years, uh, loved to proclaim that this competition launched the uh, career of Robin Williams. And I guess it really did help him. With some buzz and extra confidence, I always thought John, because John was full of shit in a lot of ways. I always thought he was bullshitting about this, but okay, fair. With some buzz, some extra confidence going for him after winning this competition, Williams moves to LA, 1977, starts performing at, uh, you know, a lot of stand-up clubs there, including the world-famous comedy store. Even in a scene nurturing notable comics at the time, like David Letterman, Andy Kaufman, Jay Leno, Richard Lewis, Sam Kinison, Elaine Boozler, Tom Dresden, or Dresden, George Miller, uh, Williams stood out. His unique style made a huge impression on many of his peers and a lot of decision makers in the industry. He seemed to be omnipresent back then. It was a topic of discussion wherever he went, said uh, author, humorist, and comedy historian Merrill Marco. He was a tough act for other comedians to follow, akin to a comedy cyclone. Uh, in his act, he was id, ego, and super ego all at the same time, she said. In 1977, while performing in L.A., he was uh, seen by TV producer George Schlatter. Uh, Schlatter, there we go who asked him to appear on a revival of the show Laugh-In. Uh, the show aired in late 1977, Williams' debut TV appearance. First film role credited Rob Williams is a small part in the 1977 low-budget comedy Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses? Guessing you have not heard of this. I hadn't. Uh, this is August of 1977. This had a budget of $750,000. Uh, regardless of the world's admiration for Robin, it has a 17% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. At the time, Variety called it a juvenile, unfunny screen version of some of the oldest and worst sex jokes in comedy history. So, you know, they, they didn't love it. Linda Gross of the LA Times wrote the film was lamely directed <laughs> and had something that will insult almost everyone. Uh, Williams was made just 150 bucks to appear in two sketches for this uh, film, quote unquote, that was really more like a poorly written, sexually charged episode of Saturday Night Live. Uh, more that than it was a movie. And the sketches Williams was in didn't even make the original cut of the film. Uh, here's one of them. This is very short. It's about 30 seconds. Sound quality is not the best, but it's uh, hopefully listenable. Uh, he's, he's wearing a bandana wrapped under his jaw and around the top of his head when this scene opens up, the sketch. He's playing a country bumpkin who has a bad toothache. He's waiting in front of the office of a doctor with a large mold of a tooth hanging above the office door. So Williams assumes the man is a dentist and, and the doctor has just shown up now. Goodness, you're here, doc. I'm new in this town, and this tooth is killing me. Your tooth? I'm afraid you made a mistake, young man. I'm not a dentist. I'm a gynecologist. A gynecologist? What you got that big tooth outside your office for? Schmuck, what'd you expect me to hang up there? 
<laughs> That's when you know a joke is a killer joke, right? When you have to have a slide whistle, remind people where the punchline is. Boop. <laughs> uh, what do you expect me to hang up there? Oh, pussy. Boop. Ding. Um, the movie didn't make a profit during its initial release because it's it's fucking terrible. <laughs> Just a bunch of bad sketches like that shown back to back. Uh, but after Williams became a star on the hit TV show, more and Mindy, I can't get over that slide whistle. Boop. I wish I had a little button uh, to do that during my stand-up shows. <laughs> Just after jokes. Boop. Um, but after Williams became a star on the hit TV show, Mork and Mindy, the next year, producer Mike Callie spent two weeks in December 1978 sorting through deleted footage. He finds these lost Robin Williams scenes, edits them back in the movie, re-releases the film, and gives Robin Williams top billing. <laughs> the other sketch he's in is about that long. It's ridiculous. Uh, pretty smart when it comes to making money, but that was, you know, pretty shady. Williams and his management team took legal action against Callie and the film distributor for false and misleading advertising, and they got them to uh, stop implying that Williams was the star of the film. Uh, 1977, a great year for Williams, who had just turned 26. Uh, jobs started to pour in for the fr frenetically funny man, uh, including being cast on NBC's The Richard Pryor Show. Uh, check it out. Check it out if you have the time, Robin Punky. Baby boy's pulling it off. Uh, on September 13th, 1977, the first of only four episodes of The Richard Pryor Show will air. It was an interesting choice to have a man who made a living as one of the most profane and controversial comics in, in stand-up history to have him on TV in the middle of Family Hour. Man Pryor. Easily a Mount Rushmore comic. One of the best three or four to ever do it. Williams must have been pumped to be cast alongside arguably the most famous, most respected comic of the late 70s. Uh, the cast of Pryor's show included, uh, of course, Pryor and uh, uh, Williams, plus Paul Mooney, Sandra Bernhard, Tim Reed, John Witherspoon, uh, Vic Dunlop, John Witherspoon of, of Friday fame, by the way, uh, Eddie McClurg, Marsha Warfield from Night Court. Some of the skits were just way too ahead of their time. Each episode caused controversy. One skit showed Pryor nude, but with his genitals missing like a Ken doll. People didn't care for that, I guess. Uh, another one had him blowing away a bunch of white people <laughs> with a machine gun. You know, people didn't care for that. You know, some people. Uh, it ranked only 86 out of 104 shows total uh, on TV for the 1977-1978 season. It was just too much for too many. Despite only a four-show or episode run, you know, being cast on the show was uh, still a big break for Williams. And then he would get a much bigger break right afterwards. Huge break. He is cast by Gary Marshall, a very famous producer known for creating Happy Days and its spinoffs and so many other shows, as the alien Mork in a 1978 episode of Happy Days called My Favorite Orkin. Sought after as a last-minute cast replacement for a departing actor, Williams impressed the bigwig producer with his quirky sense of humor when he sat on his head when asked to take a seat for the audition. As Mork, Williams improvised much of his dialogue in physical comedy, speaking in a high nasal voice. The cast and crew, as well as a uh, you know, as TV network executives, deeply impressed with his performance. On February 28th, 1978, the episode of Happy Days airs. People fucking shit themselves over Robin's performance. It was, as they say, the talk of the town. His star had risen, it would never fall back down. Mork's appearance was so popular with viewers, it quickly led to a spin-off TV show, Mork and Mindy, co-starring Pam Dauber, ran from 1978 to 1982. The whole world was soon seen Nanu Nanu and Shazbot. Uh, the show was written around Robin's extreme improvisations, uh, his dialogue and behavior, uh, very much his show. And then he, uh, he even got to have his mentor, Jonathan Winters, play the role of Mirth, the child of Mork and Mindy. Because of Orkin physiology, Orkins age backwards, starting with elderly adult bodies, but with the mind of a child and regressing to feeble old kids. Uh, although he portrayed the same characters in Happy Days, the series was set in 
present in Boulder, Colorado instead of the late 50s in Milwaukee. Mork and Mindy was a fucking hit. At his peak, had a weekly audience of about 30 million. It was credited with turning Williams into a superstar. It's so many viewers. It averaged over 15 million viewers, you know, each episode for its 91 episode run. That's like Big Bang Theory level of viewership, which I believe is the most popular sitcom of this century. Uh, hard to find, uh, you know, a conclusive list regarding that. According to critic James, uh, fucking who cares? James, crazy ass last name that is never said out loud anywhere on the internet. The series was especially popular among young people as Williams became a man and a child, buoyant, rubber-faced, uh, an endless gusher of innovation. He quickly became a household name. This is so nuts. In the fall of 1976, right, he's working as a bartender in a tiny comedy club in San Francisco. Then he wins his big comedy competition, moves to LA, gets on an episode of Happy Days as a replacement, last minute replacement in early 1978, year and a half after winning this competition. People guest star on shit all the time and it does fuck all for their careers. I have known so many comics over the years who have broken into acting. You know, uh, it's so hard to get cast in anything. There's so much competition and then they will get cast as a guest star on some show or even as a series regular, sometimes as one of the leads and it still doesn't do anything for the career. No one gives a shit. Uh, not only, you know, do they uh, not get a spinoff series, they don't get any extra stand-up work, no extra social media followers, nothing. To get a guest star role and get a bunch of buzz is crazy. To have it lead to your own series in the same calendar year is unbelievable. To have it lead to a series written specifically for your special talents and have that series become a massive hit, that's like winning the lottery, then using your lottery winnings to buy more lottery tickets. Everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? It's crazy. And then you hit a bigger lottery. Then you reinvest all that lottery money again in more tickets and hit a fucking even bigger lottery. The Powerball Millions, whatever. It's crazy. 1978, such a big year for Robin. He also marries his first wife, Valerie Velarde, on June 4th. They'd met back in San Francisco in 76 when he was working at a, as a bartender at Holy City Zoo. She recalled he was bartending. He had a French accent. Of course he did. <laughs> Offered me a drink, chatted me up, and was absolutely delightful. Uh, and they would have a bit of an open marriage, at least for Robin it was. Uh, Valerie recently said, Robin loved women, absolutely loved women, and I got it. I understood, and I wanted him to have that. But I also wanted him to come home. <laughs> well, all right. Okay, uh, Valerie born the same year as Robin and uh, born and raised in Connecticut. Uh, eldest child of five siblings. Her parents got divorced while she was only 12. She lived with her father, um, which left their oldest you know, sister to work and take care of him. She would eventually become an actress. She debuted with her movie uh, Rapa Rapacini in 1966 when she was just 15. Uh, she didn't appear in a lot of stuff and it appears she gave up uh, acting shortly into her and Robin's relationship. 1979, first year of total world domination for Robin. He wins a Grammy for best comedy album for the recording of his 1979 stand-up show at the Coco Cabana called Reality. What a concept. Also in 79, nominated for a primetime Emmy for lead actor in a comedy series for Mork and Mindy. Although he didn't win, he lost to Carol O'Connor for his role as Archie Bunky, fucking phenomenal, all in the family. Uh, he would win his first Golden Globe for best TV actor in Mork and Mindy. Dude's crushing it. I wonder if his dad's still asking him about welding. Mork becomes so popular, becomes a merchandise machine. His face is now found on posters, coloring books, lunchboxes, all sorts of shit. He's everywhere. Every grocery store, every department store, on TV every week. Talk of the stand-up world. He appears in the March 12th, 1979 cover of Time Magazine when he's only 27. All right, took him a few years to figure out what stand-up uh, was what he wanted to pursue. But then once he was done with school and did pursue it, holy shit, did his career take off quick. Uh, Williams also appears in the cover of Rolling Stone, August 23rd, 1979. Time and Rolling Stone in the same year. As the success comes in, like many others in the Coke-fueled era, Williams begins to uh, live in the fast lane, especially as he becomes more successful. Coke, Coke, Coke. You can practically see the powder 
falling out of his nose in some early 80s videos of his stand-up shows. Early 80s, though. Who wasn't doing lots of blow? Uh, early 1980, he begins filming his first starring role in the kids' comedy Popeye, uh, directed by Robert Altman, co-starring Shelley Duvall. She's been in a ton of stuff. I mostly know her from playing Jack Nicholson's wife uh, in the Stephen King horror classic, The Shining. Uh, December 6, 1980, the film is uh, released. It grosses $6 million on its opening weekend in the U.S., makes $32 million after that in just 32 days. Overall, it doubles its budget, makes almost $50 million in the U.S., $60 million worldwide. Makes a lot of money. However, in the industry, it's seen as a bit of a disappointment. It wasn't the blockbuster that Paramount and Disney hoped for. It got mixed reviews, uh, but famous critics, Gene Siskel, Robert Ebert, Siskel and Ebert, right, both gave it three out of five out of four stars. Vincent Canby of the New York Times called it a thoroughly charming, immensely appealing mess of a movie, often high-spirited and witty, occasionally pretentious and flat, sometimes robustly funny, and frequently unintelligible. It is, in short, a very mixed bag. Despite being thought of as a flop by some, it was a profitable flop, and the film still propelled Robin's career forward, as no one blamed his performance for less-than-expected financial outcome. Uh, Robin's wife, Valerie Velarde, also appeared in this film, her final acting role. Around this time, Robin becomes a casual friend of John Belushi, the blues brother. Comedy legend, star of Animal House, guitar smasher, uh, samurai, uh, Belushi, two years older than Robin. And when the hard-living SNL star died on March 5th, 1982 from a drug overdose, old Speedballs, it crushed Robin, helped inspire him to quit drugs and alcohol. Williams quit cold turkey except for white wine randomly and then took to cycling to help alleviate his depression shortly after Belushi's death. According to bicycle shop owner Tony Tom, Williams said, cycling saved my life. Also in 1982, 31-year-old William Stars is the leading character in the world according to Garp. Co-stars John Lithgow, Glenn Close, nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role and Best Actress in a Supporting Role at the 55th Academy Awards for this movie. Critics, again, mixed, but generally positive. It did just under $30 million at the box office against a budget of $17 million, so, you know, didn't, didn't live up to expectations again, but made a nice profit. Uh, another big year in 1983, the birth of his son, Zachary Pym Zach Williams, April 11th, 1983. And Zach's Dad is busy. Between 83 and 86, Robin, when not working on stand-up comedy, is in five more movies. Some real bad, some real good. 1983's The Survivors. Uh, only 9% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe not the best. 1984's Moscow on the Hudson, though. Moscow on the Hudson. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 86%. He's getting more and more chances to be the lead in films. Still hasn't had the big blockbuster many expected from him. That will come soon, though. His star continues to rise in 86 thanks to his many roles and his flourishing stand-up comedy career. And on March 24th, 1986, he co-hosts the 58th Academy Awards with Alan Alda, Jane Fonda, and of course, he steals the show. Uh, and you know, over 37 million people watch. Over a quarter of American TVs tuned in fucking nuts. Stand-up fans from the 80s will recall Robin's next big TV project. In 86, Williams teamed up with Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Crystal, to found and host Comic Relief USA, an annual HBO television benefit devoted to the homeless. Uh, which raised tens of millions of dollars. I remember watching this as a kid. Bob Zamuda, creator of Comic Relief, explained that Williams felt blessed because he came from a wealthy home and he wanted to help some of those less fortunate. He made benefit appearances to support literacy and women's rights, along with appearing at benefits for military veterans as well. He was also a regular on the USO circuit, you know, where he traveled to 13 countries, performed to approximately 90,000 troops. After his death, USO thanked him for all he did for the men and women of our armed forces. Incredible. If my popularity builds to the point that it catches the attention of whoever books those big USO tours, I hope I get the honor of going on one. On August 9th, 1986, Robin puts out a Night at the Met comedy album. Wins another Grammy. 
1987, Williams, now 36, stars in his first major breakout film, Good Morning, Vietnam. This movie would garner Williams a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actor. He won a number of awards, including two Golden Globes and an American Comedy Award. Uh, he was already a big star. Now, if he wasn't a superstar before, now he sure fucking is. Critically acclaimed, commercially loved. Uh, this movie is set in 1965 during the Vietnam War with Williams playing the role of Adrian Cronauer, radio shock jock, who keeps the troops entertained with a controversial amount of comedy and sarcasm. Incredibly, Williams is allowed to play the role without a script. He just knew the beats of what they needed to accomplish story-wise, and they let him go, let it rip. Uh, the movie grosses $124 million at the box office against a $13 million budget. Huge, critical, and commercial hit. But not everything was going well for Robin. His home life is failing as his Hollywood life is thriving. At the end of 1988, he and Valerie get a divorce. The divorce is finalized on December 6th. Their son, Zach, is five. Estimated Valerie received as much as $20 million in the split. Uh, while it was reported that Williams began an affair with their son, Zachary's nanny, Marcia Garces, or Garces, in 1986, Velarde herself would later state in the 2018 documentary about Robin Williams, Come Inside My Mind, that their relationship began after the two had separated. Uh, despite the turbulence in his private life, Robin continues to work. Also in 88, Williams appears opposite Stephen Martin, Steve Martin, uh, at the Lincoln Center in an off-Broadway production of Waiting for Godot, uh, play by Samuel Beckett in 1988. Man, that, that would have been a fucking great show. I saw that play, which is just two dudes talking the whole time, with Ian McKellen and Ben Kingsley years and years ago. And it was awesome. One critic wrote, his estragon is a maniacal creature, verging out of control at times. Williams also veered into some strange antics and the twistings that Beckett would never dream of, giving hilarious imitations of R2-D2 and John Wayne, uh, complete with an improvised machine gun. He was also in two lesser-known movies in 1988. Not going to name them all. Don't want this episode to sound up, uh, or don't want this episode to end up sounding like me reading this dude's IMDb page. On April 30th, 1989, Robin marries Marcia Garces, uh, Zachary's nanny, pregnant with his second child now. They will go on to have two kids together. Zelda, Ray William, Zelda named after the video game. He was a huge gamer, <laughs> born in 89, and Cody Allen Williams, born two years later, 1991. On June 2nd, 1989, the movie Dead Poets Society is released. Another film that, like Good Morning Vietnam, let the acting world know he was more than a stand-up comic. This is the first big movie of his that really showcases his dramatic acting chops. This is the Robin Williams movie I remember, you know, loving. I think I was too young to appreciate Good Morning Vietnam when it came out. I was 12 when this movie came out. Uh, I think I saw it the following year. Loved it. Classic film. It was a critical darling commercial blockbuster. Receives numerous accolades, you know, including uh, you know Best Actor uh, Academy Award nomination for Robin Williams. The worldwide box office reported at over 235 million against a budget of uh, less than 17 million. That's, a, that's fucking absurd. Critics said the final emotional scene in Dead Poet Society inspired a generation and became part of uh, pop culture. And sometimes that, oh, captain, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. That scene fucks with my allergies a little bit. They must, they must have diced up some onions or something and just wove those into the original, uh, you know, film. I don't know. Sometimes that scene makes my chest feel a little bit tight too. Like maybe some black magic was used in that movie. Uh, between 1990 and 1992, he took on a bunch more movies. 1990, you know, it was Cadillac Man, Awakenings. 91, he uh, you know, co-stars with Bob, Bobcat Goldway, his buddy in the black comedy film Shakes the Clown, cult classic. A movie uh, Martin Scorsese would call uh, The Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. Love it. He also filmed Dead Again, The Fisher King, and Hook in 91. Dead Again, The Fisher King would both uh, receive high praise. He would be nominated for another Academy Award for the latter. 
Uh, Robin continued his prolific filmmaking pace in 1992. He did two animated films where he lent his voice first, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, and then his highly acclaimed role in the Disney film Aladdin. His voice role in Aladdin, written specifically for him, would go a long way towards ushering an era of celebrity voice acting. At first, Williams refused the role since it was a Disney movie and he did not want the studio profiting by selling merchandise based on the movie. I think he was maybe you know, annoyed that he missed out on that merch money from the uh, Morgan Mini craze. Disney, of course, did merchandise the shit out of everything, but to placate him, at least as the story goes, Disney sent him a Picasso painting worth a pretty hefty sum where Picasso painted his self-portrait in the style of Vincent Van Gogh. So nice, that gets him on board. He improvised much of his dialogue for Aladdin, recording approximately 30 hours of tape, and he impersonated dozens of celebrities. Ed Sullivan, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Groucho Marx, Ronnie Dangerfield, William F. Buckley, Peter Lorre, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arsenio Hall, so many others. His role in Aladdin became one of the most recognized and best loved uh, of, you know, roles of any Disney movie. Highest grossing movie of 1992. Did over $500 million at the box office against a budget of $28 million. Roy Disney, rumored to be very pleased. The evil mom killer who had been a satanic zombie since 1971 only ate two kids that day instead of his normal five. He was so happy from what I understand. Why would I malign Roy Disney? Well, go back and listen to the Time Suck Disney episode if you must know. Matricide. Uh, Aladdin would win a uh, fuckload of awards, including a special Golden Globe Award for vocal work and a motion picture for Williams. Uh, Robin was later named a Disney legend in 2009. Do you remember Aladdin? He made that movie. Who else could have played the genie like he did? Absolutely fucking no one. Oh, wow! What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin! Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? Or how about Aladdin? Sounds like here, boy. Come on, Yo, <laughs> There's just so, so many just like quick little weird riffs of his. Uh, you can find videos on YouTube that have all the outtakes if you want to just lose hours. Uh, November 22nd, 1993, William stars one of his most iconic movies, Mrs. Doubtfire, directed by Chris Columbus. The film grossed uh, $441 million on a $25 million budget. That's insane. That is insane. Uh, he would win a Golden Globe for the film. So much comedy, so much heart. Remember when Mrs. Downfire beamed Pierce Brosnan's character with a lime, popped him right in the head? Oh, I think that's my favorite scene in that movie. Oh, sir. I saw it. Some angry member of the kitchen staff. Did you not tip them? Oh, the terrorists, they ran that way. It was a run by fruiting. Uh, I watched that movie at home with my dad and stepmom, and I don't recall ever hearing them laugh as much at a movie as that one. I also thought it was hilarious. Huge comedy hit. Uh, during this time, his friend Steven Spielberg was filming the dark film Schindler's List, and I guess Robin would call him up to make him laugh. Spielberg said, Robin knew what I was going through, and once a week, he would call me on schedule. He would do 50 minutes of stand-up over the phone. I would laugh hysterically because I had to release so much. That is so fucking cool. Doing one-on-one one -on -one stand-up routines over the phone for Steven Spielberg. How cool for Steven Spielberg. Imagine being so respected and famous that when you're feeling down, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Eddie Vedder, maybe Paul McCartney calls you up and sings you some songs to cheer you up. Or maybe, I don't know, you know, Michael McDonald. You've just been McDonalded. Have fun with that earworm. You're probably still going to hear it when you wake up tomorrow morning. That was 1977's You Belong to Me, written, performed by Michael McDonald. 
written uh, written uh, co-written by Carly Simon. Uh, now under Robin Williams in 1994. Uh, Robin would keep up a heavy filmmaking pace, make 13 movies between 94 and 97. Made three in 95, including the huge hit Jumanji, working with the young Kirsten Dunst. I always forget about how popular she was. Uh, May 27th, 1995, Christopher Reeve, strong athlete, avid horseman, uh, the most famous Superman, left paralyzed from the neck down after being thrown from his horse, breaking his neck during an equestrian competition in Virginia. Robin rushes to be by his friend's side. He immediately came in and started to make Reeve laugh. It was reported that Robin felt an immense guilt in John Belushi's death, wanted to be there for Reeve now. Uh, this is so cool. National Enquirer columnist Rob Schulter recalls in the documentary, Robin Williams, when the laughter stops, he says, Robin felt partially responsible for not having done enough to save his friend Belushi. So when he entered the hospital room for Christopher Reeve, he dressed up as a German doctor. He had a thick accent. He insisted that Christopher Reeve turn over and have an exam, a proctology exam. Reeve was really, really surprised. He couldn't figure it out. Then he finally realized this was his mate. This was Robin Williams. The two of them had a great laugh, maybe the first laugh Reeve had since the accident occurred. That's fucking awesome. Uh, Robin did five movies in 1996 alone, uh, including the beloved culture-shifting comedy The Birdcage and the sequel to Aladdin. In The Birdcage, he played Armand Goldman, openly gay owner of a drag club in South Beach, Florida called The Birdcage. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, GLAAD, praised the film for going beyond the stereotypes to see the character's depth and humanity. The film celebrates differences and points out the outrageousness of hiding those differences. Uh, some critics have said the film went a long ways towards destigmatizing homosexuality in the U.S. 1996, such a big year for Williams. So hell Nimrod to that. Uh, 1996, such a big year for Williams. At one point in 96, both The Birdcage and Jumanji each make over $100 million in the same week. He's fucking crushing it. Also cast to play the supporting role of Osric and Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of Shakespeare's Hamlet. The following year, 97, he stars in four more movies. Disney's Flubber, Deconstructing Harry with uh, Woody Allen, uh, Father's Day. And one of them, a little more well-known than the others, and that would be uh, Goodwill Hunting. And probably not going to get uh, a lot of praise for saying this. That's the dumbest fucking movie I've ever watched. Actually, that's not true because I, I had to turn it off halfway. Anti-science propaganda. Goodwill Hunting is basically about how even a janitor can be a math genius, which is not true. That bullshit movie makes anyone think they can learn something like math on their own outside of the higher education system. And that's garbage. Clean the floor, motherfucker. Leave the equations to the kids who go to the classes. How about those apples? If you don't go to a good school and you're not taught by the best professors, you're fucking stupid. And you're going to be stupid forever. And it's okay. Accept it. Now, just, just say it. Just say it. I don't go to one of the best schools, so I'm stupid. I'm a stupid baby. No one likes me. I'm a burden on society and I shit myself every day. Say it. I shit my stupid baby grown-up dummy diapers. And I should set myself on fucking fire. It'd be better for everybody. Say it! JK. Gosh dang. That was, that was absurd and, and unnecessary. That was too dark at the end. Uh, no. Goodwill <laughs> Good Hunting's fucking great. I love that movie. Uh, Goodwill Hunting has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, grossed over $225 million against a $10 million budget. Thought to be one of Williams' most captivating dynamic performances. Won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Won the award March 21st, 1998. Famously forgot to thank his mom during the accepting speech when she was in the audience. Well, fucking punky. Maybe you should have been a better mommy. Uh, that movie turned both Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, who co-wrote the screenplay into stars, put them on the map. The movie also features several great Elliott Smith songs in the soundtrack, including Say Yes and Miss Misery, the latter of which was written specifically for the movie, nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, rest in peace, Elliott Smith. I fucking love that dude. So many great songs, one of the best to ever come out of Portland's indie music scene. Had him on heavy rotation for years. Uh, Williams made two more films in 98. The Visual Mindfuck, that is what 
Dreams May Come, and the lighthearted look at the dark world of children's medicine in Patch Adams. Uh, Patch Adams more financially successful, but I loved What Dreams May Come. That one might that one might have fucked with my allergies a little bit. A poignant film about afterlife possibilities, about how much love and life you know matter. People, a lot of people hated it, but I loved it. Uh, 1999, he did three more films, including Jacob the Liar, uh, Bicentennial Man, made twenty million dollars for that one. Uh, solid payday for one project. Also in 99, Williams and his second wife, Marsha, found the philanthropic organization called the Windfall Foundation to raise money for so many charities. Hail Nimrod. Uh, he took 2000 off as far as major projects go and most of 2001 as well. Only started one film in 2001, playing the voice of Dr. No in Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial Intelligence. Uh, he started four movies in 2002, the psychological thriller One Hour Photo, plus the dark and weird comedy Death to Smoochie, which starred Edward Norton, directed by Danny DeVito. I saw a one-hour photo and loved it. Williams got a lot of praise for playing a creepy loner. Very different role for him when he killed it. Also a lot of uh, praise for his role in the psychological thriller Insomnia. Another creepy loner role. That movie also starred Al Pacino, directed by Christopher Nolan. Received, uh, uh, you know, as the best role Robin had played in years. 92% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I had never seen it, so I did stop my research and I watched it with Lindsay a few nights ago and so good. Not comedic at all. Just disturbing. He brought so much humanity to a deeply fucked up character. He really was such a wonderful actor. 2002 would also be the year that Robin would put out a new comedy album slash special, Robin Williams, live on Broadway. His tour broke many long-held ticket sale records for a stand-up show. In some cases, for venues that sat thousands and thousands of people, he would sell out in, you know, less than 30 minutes. And what a blast that tour must have been. Standing ovation after standing ovation. 2003, after 21 years of sobriety, outside of the occasional glass of white wine, Williams starts to drink again while working on a film in Alaska. I'm guessing that was Insomnia, since that's where that movie was set. But, well, maybe not, because it's 2003. Sorry, I just ad-libbed that, and I'm probably wrong. Uh, he would drink more and more over the next few years. He was voted 13th on Comedy Central's list of 100 greatest stand-ups of all time in 2004. On October 10th that year, his longtime buddy Christopher Reeve would pass away. He was heartbroken. Their friendship was like brothers from another mother, according to his son, Zach. Uh, Williams paid many of Reeves' medical bills and gave financial support to his family. I love that he did that. 2005, Williams receives a Cecil B. DeMille Award for career achievements uh, for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and stars in two more films, Robots and The Big White. 2006, even busier, six movies, including the very popular Night at the Museum, where he played Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt. That movie grosses almost $600 million. Jesus Christ. He also checks himself into a substance abuse uh, rehab center in Newburgh, Oregon that year, saying he was an alcoholic. He's back to sobriety and he'd keep working when he gets out. He uh, does a few more lesser known films over the next two years. In March, 2008, his wife of two decades, former nanny, uh, files for divorce from Williams, citing irreconcilable differences. And their divorce would be finalized in 2010. After a six year hiatus in August of 2008, he gets back into stand up, announces a new 26, 26 city tour, Weapons of Self Destruction. Sold out every show. You can find a lot of clips on YouTube. Tour started September of 2009, concluded in New York on December 3rd, and there was an HBO special. Highly acclaimed, watched by millions. Following year, does four movies, 2009, including the sequel to Night at the Museum, also appears uh, as himself on SpongeBob SquarePants. I love it. March of 2009, he's hospitalized due to heart problems. He postpones another tour of stand-up for surgery to replace his aortic valve. That surgery was completed March 13th, 2009 at the Cleveland Clinic. Go Browns! Come on! Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb, Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, all the same system, same head coach for more than a single season now. Young, healthy. Are they going to wreak some havoc in the AFC North? I think they fucking will. I know that has nothing to do with Robin Williams, but I'm a bandwagon Browns fan. I'm excited now. 
After laying low for the most part for a few years at the age of 60, Williams marries his third wife, graphic designer Susan Schneider, October 22nd, 2011, in St. Helena, California. The two live in a uh, super cool, scenic, and affluent neighborhood of Seacliff in San Francisco. Kirk Hammett from Metallica just sold his Seacliff mansion in 2019 for almost $12 million. $12 million. Uh, Robin and Susan met standing outside of an Apple store and five minutes later, they were literally fucking on the street. Williams was notorious for doing that. So famous, people knew it was him, but he somehow never got into any legal trouble for that. In the Bay Area especially, this is unbelievable. He fucked someone in the street. Uh, if, if he did that near you, it was just called getting williams Like, yeah, you got williams Welcome to the club. You know, I saw him bend over two different women in the middle of a busy intersection during rush hour last week. Whatever, no big deal. Women he publicly had sex with to become minor celebrities. People buy him drinks in bars, clap when they came in, that sort of thing. The cops uh, would not only not arrest Williams for doing this, sometimes they'd stop traffic until he was finished. A lot of times while he was fucking someone in the street, he would do impressions. He'd work out stand-up bits to keep around him entertained. And of course that's not true, but it did it, it did put quite the visual in your head, did it not? Next time you watch one of his movies, next time you're watching Mrs. Doubtfire, you might just think about him fucking someone in the street. You're welcome. The truth now. Robin and Susan met standing outside of an Apple store and they fell in love shortly afterwards. Susan Schneider would later really be the star of the Robin Williams documentary, Robin's Wish, about his struggle with Louis body dementia. She comes across as an amazing badass. Robin would make only one film between 2010 and 2013, the sequel to Happy Feet, Happy Feet 2. He was too busy loving life with his new bride to be working all the time. He's too busy fucking in the street. Come on. Uh, May 2013, he begins a new CBS television series, The Crazy Ones. His first starring TV role since Mork and Mindy, three decades earlier. Uh, the show is unfortunately canceled after just one season. Hollywood scribe Dan Hernandez took to Twitter to share his special time with the late comedy legend. Hernandez and writing partner Benji Samet worked with Robin Williams on the pilot for CBS's The Crazy Ones. He named his time with Williams his best celebrity encounter. The screenwriter said about working on the short-lived sitcom, we were asked to be on the set for the pilot of the show, The Crazy Ones, Robin's big return to TV. We had only six months of TV experience under our belt. We were honored and flattered to be asked, Robin Williams, what would he be like, aloof? Mean? No, the best. Watching him work in person made my appreciation rise to another level. He would effortlessly rip off improvs, take after take, doing different riffs, finally asking for a final take where he'd string all the improvs together into a super take. While on set, Dan Hernandez revealed the late comedian got the only standing ovation he has ever witnessed from a film or television crew. Also recalled Robin being kind, gentle, wise, and quiet off screen. Uh, despite his status as a top Hollywood star, He'd ask for feedback. He'd listen to notes. Uh, he wanted to create a great show. Hernandez once pitched a joke to the late comedy legend, and the writer said this of Williams' reception. This experience culminated when during one of the scenes, I pitched an alt joke to the director, who in turn pitched it to Robin. Robin laughed so hard, he stopped the take, walked off set yelling, who wrote this joke? It's a great one. Someone pointed him in my direction. Robin fucking Williams came up to me shouting, Dan, what a great joke. Then he asked me for my permission to alter it slightly. Of course, Robin, I said, in the moment I could feel my soul leaving my body from disbelief and joy. Even now, it hardly seems real. I love this so much, man. So many great people, so many amazing moments with him. Even when he was personally really struggling. While he was uh, filming this new series, Robin was also uh, asking his doctors if he had dementia, if he was schizophrenic, he wasn't feeling himself at all, hadn't been for a while, he was struggling, trying to figure out what's going on with his mind. Had a hard time memorizing lines for the first time in his life. His doctors don't have an answer. They don't think he has either of those things and they continue to do tests. The final year of Robin's life will be the year after filming this series, 2014. He'd work on four films this year, including the final installment of Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb, 
the last film his face would appear in. Uh, the last film of Williams released during his lifetime was The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Uh, he is not feeling well at all during filming. Uh, his brain's working against him. During the difficult final years of Williams' life, he suffered from debilitating insomnia, paranoia, hallucinations, confusion, all of which were initially thought to be brought on by Parkinson's, the diagnosis he received less than three months before his death. Similar to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia robs patients of their cognition. Motor skills typically progresses more quickly, making basic problem solving and comprehension difficult for those affected. His wife, Susan, described the illness as the terrorist inside his brain. He desperately tried to move forward a couple of weeks before he died in 2014. Uh, uh, Schneider Williams, you know, his, his, his widow would say, I had to run an errand at that very same Apple store where we met. Out of the blue, she told USA Today, he came walking in with flowers and surprised me. I looked at him like, oh my God, what are you doing? And he said, this is where it all began. God, God damn it, Robert. That fucked with my allergies a bit too when I first came across. And thanks a lot. You just set the bar pretty damn high for all of us in a relationship. If I was listening to this, uh, you know, with what I just said with Lindsay, I would definitely get a look of like, well, why don't you do that? Why don't you do things like that? I, I, I do sometimes. On August 11th, 2014, Robin Williams left this world forever. His death is ruled a suicide. His body is found in Paradise K, California, where he also had a home just outside of Tiburon. His body is cremated. Ashes are scattered over San Francisco Bay the day after his death. So many wonder why a man associated with laughter and love would take his own life. I remember being a little shook up. He always seemed so happy. After his death in 2014, four films starring him were released, Night of the Museum, Secret of the Tomb, A Merry Friggin' Christmas, Boulevard, and Absolutely Anything. In an essay published in the journal Neurology, two years after his death, the world finally started to learn why Williams went out like he did. His wife revealed that the pathology of Lewy body disease in Williams was described by several doctors as among the worst pathologies they'd ever seen. They'd taken scans before he died of his brain. She described the early symptoms of his disease as beginning in October of 2013. His initial condition included a sudden and prolonged spike in fear and anxiety, stress and insomnia, which worsened in severity and then began to include memory loss, paranoia, and delusions. What a fucking nightmare. Uh, towards the end, he began to call his friends at all hours of the night. He would decide they were in trouble. He felt he had to go see them and they would always be fine. According to his wife, Susan, Robin was losing his mind and he was aware of it. He kept saying, I just want to reboot my brain. I just want to reboot my brain. Ugh. Who knows what kind of delusions and paranoia he suffered from when he took his own life. You know, Or maybe he was having an incredibly lucid moment and new things were just going to keep getting worse, that he was going to descend further into madness. He had talked to his doctors. They couldn't help him. Looking at his situation this way, honestly, he might have done the same thing. You know, go out while you still have at least some control of your actions, you know? Sometimes suicide seems like the most humane option to me when life de deals you a hand like this, when you know your mind is going to deteriorate, just to mush in front of your friends and family, your loved ones, when you constantly see pity and sadness for you in the eyes of those around you, when you recognize the man in the mirror less and less. Since his death, uh, Susan become an advocate to raise awareness about LBD. She joined the American Brain Foundation Board in 2016, named vice chair in 2020. Uh, her work has included lobbying Congress for increased funding and support for medical professionals as they learn more about LBD. Uh, during the 66th Primetime Emmy Awards, August 25th, 2014, close friend and fellow comic Billy Crystal presents a tribute to Williams, referring to him as the brightest star in our comedy galaxy. September 9th, 2014, PBS airs a one-hour special devoted to his career. September 27th, dozens of leading stars and celebrities hold a tribute in San Francisco to celebrate his life. So many other tributes. The final autopsy report released in November 2014 concludes that he died of asphyxia due to hanging, and for the first time, evidence is given that he suffered from diffuse Lewy body dementia. 
Wife Susan said that however you look at it, the presence of Louis bodies took his life. Absolutely. Uh, I preach against suicide a lot on the show. We'll continue to do so because most who take their own lives, you know, for, for most, the possibility still exists that life could get better. But LBD removed that possibility for Williams with 100% certainty. His life was only going to get worse. It was going to get scarier, more confusing, more paranoid, more delusional. Ah, I, I don't, uh, not, not that, you know, it's my place to fucking judge that whatever, but don't, don't blame him. Don't judge him at all for, for that, man. Let's pop out of this time suck timeline and share some happy stories about his life. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Robin Williams lived a unique life. Blessed with amazing talents, steel trap of a mind until shortly before the end. An incredible uh, amount of seemingly endless energy. He was a unique talent among the world's most unique talents. He was a great fucking dude. I want to share five quick stories about what a special meat sack he was before we wrap up. What a bright light he was in a world that could be so dark for so many. Uh, here's the first, uh, uh, you know, just a, a five anecdotal tales of special moments with Robin out of a list of many, many. I think there was 30 on this one list. There's so many other lists out there. Uh, someone who once worked with him said, I was an extra in Dead Poet Society. And at the end of our last day of shooting, which happened to be New Year's Eve, he decided to come into the auditorium where the extras, 400 kids, were being kept and entertained us for a solid 20 minutes. It was such a sweet thing to do. I'm sure he was tired, wanted to be with his family, but it was unforgettable for all of us. I got to meet him again, told him how much I appreciated what he did on set. And he said, hey, I appreciate what you did. Just a kind, sweet man. How cool is that? Truly cared about the people around him. Here's a memory from a fellow Bay Area resident. Having lived in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area almost all my life, there are so many stories of Robin Williams fucking people in the street. I remember my mom first got fucked in the street by Robin. No, uh, she didn't, he didn't say that. He said uh, stories of Robin Williams' generosity. There was a family who had just come from the grandma's funeral and they stopped at a donut shop for a snack and coffee. One could tell that they were upset by their conversation about cleaning out their grandma's belongings from her nursing home. After a while, the man in the next booth, his back to them, got up and introduced himself, and it was Robin Williams. He asked if he could join them. He mentioned he had overheard their conversation. He asked them what kind of person their grandma was uh, and what kind of things she enjoyed doing. And when they told him, he was like, oh, yeah, I remember fucking her in the street about 15 years ago. No, I'm trying to stop with that. After a few minutes, he had them laughing and celebrating her life. And when he left, he paid for the donuts and coffee. Uh, and when I read that one for the first time, when I wasn't, you know, saying weird shit in the middle of it, it, it got me. It got my chest a little tight. Uh, here's someone who doesn't remember meeting Williams. Their family shared this story about Robin with them later. When I was six months old, I got a really bad case of pneumonia, almost died. My family and I were in the hospital around Christmas time. Robin fucking Williams walked into the room, talked with my parents and older brother, and gave me a toy. He did that for all the children in the hospital. And that's how the man spent his Christmas. He literally hid from the press because he didn't want it to turn into a huge media event. What a stand-up lad. He must have been working, you know, somewhere nearby, I'm guessing, on a film. Just decided to sneak into the hospital, bring smiles to some kids' faces just because he could and I guess maybe felt like he should. This next one might be my favorite. Posted online by gaming store clerk, uh, by a gaming store clerk. And again, Williams was a huge gamer. Loved video games. Again, Zelda was his favorite. And they wrote, when he was filming something in Toronto, he quote unquote worked in our store <laughs> around Christmas time selling PC video games because he was bored and looking for something to do. He asked customers what they were into and then went back to our you know, lab and showed them the games. 85% of the people he dealt with had no idea who he was. Just assumed he was a nerd. <laughs> but when someone did notice, he was super cool and would say, shh, this is our secret. Since he was staying at the hotel behind our store, we would see him all the time. That is so fucking funny to me. 
a true extrovert. He just loved being around people. You know, he's not filming whatever the day. He just goes to this game store, volunteers essentially, and just helps sell, sell shit for them. Uh, and last one, Williams loved the armed forces. This is from someone in the military who watched one of his shows. He had been flying from base to base in Afghanistan, doing shows for the troops. It was about 9 p.m. when he did his show for us, which didn't end until 11 p.m. And he stayed up another hour taking pictures, signing autographs, and making jokes. Before he left, he asked if I enjoyed the show. And when I said yes, he said, good, because you seemed extra sad today. I worked in the trauma hospital and lost three people that day. I watched his stand-up shows as part of my treatment for survivor's guilt when I got home. Damn. Hail Robin Williams. What a fucking legend. These are just a few, again, of so many cool moments I could have picked from various articles online. He just seemed like such a special, special man. Uh, when he died, U.S. President Barack Obama said this of him. Robin Williams was an airman, a doctor, a genie, a nanny, a president, a professor, a bangerang Peter Pan, and everything in between. He was one of a kind. He arrived in our lives as an alien, but he ended up touching every element of the human spirit. He made us laugh. He made us cry. He gave us immeasurable talent freely and generously to those who needed it most, from our troop station abroad to the marginalized on our own streets. I mean, Robin once said his goal was to bring people joy and make them less afraid. Sometimes, you know, sometimes fuck them in the street. Why, why can't I stop saying that? Uh, he, he accomplished the joy and uh, making people less afraid over and over. Uh, yes, the end of his life was tragic, but overall, what an amazing run. So much success. Brought joy to so many. And I feel like, you know, he felt joy so much at the time. What a rich and varied life he led. He knew what it was like to live with so much money. Then for years as a struggling comic, an acting student, not supported by his parents. He knew what it was like then to live with very little money. And then he became wealthier than he ever was growing up later in life. Most of his life, rich or poor, uh, famous or unknown, suffering through personal marital problems or in a steady relationship, struggling with addiction or sober, struggling with, you know, an unknown illness or not. He always seemed like he was so kind, so gracious, so willing to infect others with the joy he seemed to experience or at least be able to project at will. And I didn't talk uh, much about his parenting, but he seemed like a great fucking dad too, mentoring, playing along with his, uh, with his kids, loving them. Rest in peace, Robin Williams, you beautiful bastard, you. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Robin grew up in a very wealthy home, but money couldn't buy him out of some of the loneliness and awkwardness he felt. Then when he was a poor college student, he was the happiest he'd ever been. Money really can't buy happiness. Number two, there were basically no awards Robin could have won that he didn't, it seems, in his life. Didn't win. He was an award-winning comedian, recording artist, voice actor, comedic actor, and dramatic actor. Number three, Robin was partying with John Belushi the night John overdosed and died. This greatly affected him, also helped sober him up during one of the most narcotically indulgent times in American history. Number four, Robin loved to help people. He really was a full-time philanthropist in addition to being busy with his entertainment career. From numerous USO and veteran shows to working with the homeless, underprivileged youth to showing up in hospitals, raising money for a multitude of charities, paying the medical bills of his friend Christopher Reeve, Robin was one of the best of us. And number five, new info, Robin Williams, while having the reputation of being an amazing dude, also had the reputation of being maybe the most, uh, one of the most notorious joke thieves in stand-up comedy history. Maybe second to Carlos Mencia. Some people believe that Robin became famous with zero original material. One Bay Area comedian wrote, one of the things that I've learned from doing stand-up comedy is that Robin Williams steals jokes. That's the worst fucking thing any comic could ever do to another comic. His joke stealing is so well known that whenever he steps in a club, any experienced comedian ends their set immediately. And there is evidence that Williams stole a few bits from comics like Ray Romero or Ray Romano uh, and then performed it right in front of David Letterman, who uh, produced Ray's show. 
Uh, comedian Stephen Pearl once wrote, Robin Williams has to be in the top three names when there's a discussion of joke thievery. Robin used to do my material. We'd work together, and the next night I'd see or hear that he was doing one of my bits. One, uh, one night I remember, or one bit I remember I did at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco around the time of that Sun City song. I used to do Sammy Davis Jr. singing, hey, I won't play Sun City unless I get the big room. Then I hear Robin's doing it. I confronted him, gave him shit. He cut me a check right there for a thousand bucks. There were a few more checks with substantial for substantial amounts of money that kept my rent paid for a while. When Robin would come back to the clubs after he became really famous, some guys would refuse to go on stage again yet until he left the room. Uh, notable comics, Richard Lewis, Robert Wool, accused late Robin Williams of stealing jokes due to his sponge-like brain. Some comics hated him for it, says Lewis, but I wasn't one of them. Uh, David Brenner claimed that he confronted Williams personally, threatened with him with bodily harm. If you heard Williams utter another one of his jokes. Uh, there have also been numerous comics who have defended Williams, like Whoopi Goldberg. She spoke out and basically said if he did it, you know, it was not intentional. It was due to that sponge-like brain of his, again. Do I think he did it? I don't know. His main accuser, I will say, Stephen Pearl, uh, ugh, god-awful, hacky 80s comic with uh, really terrible jokes. Like, I can't I can't make it through a five-minute set of his on YouTube. Watching him makes me just hate stand-up comedy. Uh, he, se he seems like a poor copy, copy of Robin, actually. Uh, a poor clone, a clone of a clone of Robin Williams. All the volume and energy, none of the wit. So I'm going to say his accusations are maybe a little hollow. I didn't see any good jokes he had, so I don't know what, what Robin was stealing. stealing. Uh, did he steal David Brenner's jokes? I mean, maybe. There was enough smoke that, you know, I bet there's some fire. I bet he did lift some punchlines. Was it intentional? I don't know. I watched a YouTube video of Jay Moore accusing Robin of stealing his Christopher Walken impression. I don't buy that example. Jay did a story about Walken, wanting a tale, so did Williams, but the stories were different. Uh, punchlines, similar but different. And Jay did it in his stand-up. Williams was just talking about, on Charlie Rose about stuff, not trying to do stand-up and the flow of conversation led to a walking impression and he did talk about tails. I don't know, maybe fucking Christopher Walken likes, likes tails. I don't know. The accusation seemed weak to me. And, and look, I hate joke thievery, but there's also something called parallel development that a lot of people who aren't comics don't really understand or know about. A lot of comedic minds, you know, uh, they're, they're leading similar lives. They're thinking about similar things and there's bound to be many instances of two people coming to the same basic conclusion in bit or joke form. It's just called parallel development. Happens all the time. That being said, do I think that Williams stole some jokes? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess he probably did. You know, um, I think, I do think, I do think there, there's just so many stories about him cutting checks to people whose jokes he supposedly took. I, I, I have a hard time believing those are all lies. Uh, but all those accusations do seem to come from his early days, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and the kind of comedy Williams did was very vaudeville-esque, very Catskills-esque. You know, late night host monologue type jokes. Uh, depersonalized kind of comedy. And, you know, in the Catskill tr tradition, guys would use these other jokes all the time. So there is that. I mean, it's not like Williams told a four-month story about doing something with his kids, some really personal story that he, you know, lifted from somebody else's life. That, to me, is the worst form, by far, of joke thievery. You know, with Williams, it was more like he uh, he took a throwaway George H.W. Bush line and just, you know, riffed it into a, uh, you know, stream-of-consciousness improv rant. Is that still shitty? Uh, yeah, someone who works hard to create original content, sure. But does it mean that uh, he didn't have original thoughts or never wrote his own material? No, I don't think it means that. Uh, does it mean he was a, you know, just a, 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 just lacked artistic integrity, that he wasn't some great guy? No, absolutely not. He was an amazing guy, a gifted performer. Maybe maybe not the best writer. Maybe should have hired joke writers. Uh, and he was a man who, like all of us, meet sacks, you know, had his faults, wasn't perfect. And that was one of his. So controversy addressed. I still think he's one of the best comics ever. Uh, now let's get the fuck out of here. Time suck. Top five takeaways.
Robin Williams, one of America's greatest ever entertainers. His life has been sucked. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, uh, for doing all the initial digging on this week's research, Bit Elixir for refining the Time Suck app, Logan Art Warlock, Keith running badmagicmerch.com, being our creative director, responsible for all things visual here at Bad Magic, um, and uh, Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Liz runs our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, currently Cult of the Curious 2, along with her all-seeing eyes, the moderators. So thank to, thanks to all of you for helping curate an awesome online community. Thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord, uh, link to the Discord group through the TimeSuck app. Uh, next week, a return to darkness, big time. The Grim Sleeper. Next week, we take a break from creepy white dude killers and look at a creepy black dude killer. Lonnie David Franklin Jr., the Grim Sleeper, a man who terrorized women in South Central LA for a quarter of a century, from 85 to 2010. Kidnapped, raped, beat, strangled his victims before shooting them with a 25 caliber handgun. Obsessively took photos of his victims, both dead and alive, saving them as trophies keeping them carefully tucked away in his garage. The youngest, just 15 years old, a girl who was having some trouble at home, ran away only to become a victim of an evil predator. The Grim Sleeper, uh, convicted of killing 10 women. Uh, many think he killed, you know, probably closer to 25, making him one of America's most prolific serial killers. And he may have gotten away with what he did for as long as he did because too many people just didn't care who lived and who died in South Central Los Angeles. Apathy may have been the Grim Sleeper's most powerful ally. Now let's head on over to a place devoid of apathy. This week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Our uh, first update relates directly to last week's royal suck. Fantastic French sucker Alex Gagné uh, Blouin, Blouin writes, quick message about duty, legacy, and pressure. I understand your misgivings about the British royal family but I suggest a little thought experiment about what it means to be an heir to something that big. Far be it for me to tell you how to do your job, but it feels like pieces of the puzzle were, if not missing, a little fuzzy. Imagine your family has done time suck in some form or another since time immemorial. Uh, I always struggle with that. Immemorial, I think that's right. Uh, your father did it before you. Grandpa Ward had a time suck radio show. So did his father. His grandfather did a live version in front of paying audiences. And uh, so have his father and grandfather before him and so on. Now imagine that there's only one such show allowed in the U.S. It started only in Idaho, but soon became the only funny, irreverent, and informative show that was allowed to exist by law. Millions of people listened to it. And in its live days, it involved tours and overseas broadcasts. You've been groomed your whole life to take over Time Suck. You were expected to be funny and flip idiots off <laughs> from childhood and keep that persona up at all times, lest your dad lost his job. You've been thought that everything you do has to live up to all previous Time Suck hosts who came before you. You grew up feeling like you were closely observed by those hundreds of beloved ancestors. Now imagine your son Kyler is meant to take over after you. He has to be exactly what you are, with the allowance for a little personal touch, but his role is extremely clear. But he doesn't want to. He's just not made for it. He'd rather be a sculptor or a linguist, and it drives you insane. Why can't you just do what you're supposed to do? You tell him day in and day out. You try to mold him into a Time Suck host, but he doesn't get it. He tries, of course, but never it's never right. And with every failure, you're more and more enraged. You did what you had to do. You became exactly the right person. You had the right gifts. You don't understand why he can't just do the same. Listenership starts dropping. The Time Suck team starts groaning. If this keeps up, the podcast might be handed over to someone else or be canceled outright. How does Kyler feel right now? When everything he does is looked on disapprovingly by illustrious dead ancestors, tabloids mock him. His failures as a prospective Time Suck host make the news. He'd be crushed, wouldn't he? 
Obviously, this is an exaggerated and one-sided example, but I wanted to use it to point out that the wealth, prestige, and privilege come with strings the size of anchor chains. Do I think you should have gone easy on Prince Charles? Fuck no, I'm not a royal family fanboy, but I am a fan of putting myself in other people's shoes and trying to understand them. Not saying you didn't try, but I feel like your distaste for the royal circus might have cut you out from the human element on the other side, uh, on the other sides, other than Princess Diana, and it might have made for a deeper, more exhaustive look. Again, I want to reiterate that I think you did a good job. Just wanted to give you food for thought. Thank you for the suck and all you do to get it out every week. Keep on sucking. Holy shit, Alex. That was fucking brilliant. My God. Uh, you just actually truly got me to feel bad for Prince Charles. Like, no bullshit. Uh, I did not think about things from his perspective in that way, in the way you just laid out. Uh, you just laid out a fucking masterclass and how to personalize an issue to help someone else understand it. Can you please do something similar for the political divisiveness in America right now? Help each side see the other's point of view. Uh, truly well done. Uh, bravo, Alex. I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that level of pressure. I absolutely can't. I have not walked in shoes like that. I don't have a personal connection to legacy because my family doesn't really have any. Not like that. Uh, yeah, you made me, um, you know, rethink what it would be like to be a royal that way. Again, thank you. Thanks for reminding all of us to do what you just did for me, to try and see things from someone else's perspective, tr you know, to truly try and see it. Uh, now after doing a suck about a man who had big, big dreams and chased him, let's hear a message from another young dreamer. A young man like Robin once was, trying to make it in the enter entertainment business like Robin once did. Super sucker, fellow Idahoan Nate Owen shares the following. Dear Dan, master of the suck first, scribe of Bojangles, arbiter of Nimrod, Lucifina's muse. I apologize in advance for the long email. I've been listening to Time Suck ever since the doctor who was checking me out for hemorrhoids recommended your podcast in the fall of 2019. I love it. Ever since, I've listened to every single episode of Time Suck. Scared to death, is we dumb? And I'm working on listening to the backlog of The Secret Suck. I have never really found reason to write you or the team until now. I usually just like hearing what everyone else who writes in has to say. However, I recently reached out to The Secret Suck to tell my ayahuasca story and the cult people I saw in Pasadena. Since then, I felt more connected to the cult and I'm inspired by a fellow Idahoan making a living in the world of entertainment. A little bit about me. I grew up in Sandpoint, found music through middle school and high school choir programs, then started playing gigs, learned guitar and piano, eventually went on to study music in college. I graduated from the University of Idaho in 2019 with a Bachelor's of Music and Vocal Performance, and I'm currently attending the University of Southern California for a Master's in Vocal Arts and Opera. I never really wanted to do opera singing for a living, but it was the pathway I thought would allow me to get to LA without blindly moving there to pursue my own career as a singer and songwriter. I write all this because I feel connected to the cult and need help. I have not been able to perform music in 18 months. I have lived in LA for most of the pandemic. I deferred graduation in hopes that by the fall of this year, I could have at least one semester that wasn't taught through Zoom. Unfortunately, LA County just banned indoor aerosol producing activities like singing. I will no longer have the opportunity to collaborate and do any shows in person this semester. Fucking sucks. My degree has basically been me sitting in my apartment trying to figure out what I want from life and how I'm going to overcome the obstacles COVID has presented. I'm very lucky to have not lost anyone close to COVID. However, my mom works in healthcare as high-risk OB specialist. She has suffered a lot in the past two years having to deal with all the craziness this pandemic has presented. My biggest inspiration and anchor in life is unable to be the pillar she once was. I've been forced to uh, become stronger in the face of living alone in a new city during this pandemic. Along with this, I was hospitalized by a manic depressive disorder I've dealt with since childhood, had to undergo two surgeries in a period of six months. It's been the hardest year of my life as it was for many. I thought long and hard about what I want to do, and the answer always comes up the same. Sing. I want to sing. I want to perform the music I write. I want to make a living as a musician. I thought that after all this, I'd want to quit, but in a weird way, I've become more determined. I spent this last summer working away on my album as well as, uh, as 
finding a director from USC Film School to put together a team for a music video. We wrapped in July. It's in the editing phase. The song is called Viking on the Metro, a true story. I literally brought a film crew into the downtown LA Metro at 1 a.m. to film illegal, illegally dressed as a Viking. The permit for film students still costs $2,000. So yeah, it had to bend the rules. Uh, and the latest secret suck. You and the crew discussed how everyone wants to be a musician, artist, but, not, but doesn't want to put in all the work. Hearing you talk about it that way was enlightening. As you all do music and understand the struggle, yeah, exactly, Joe and Zach, uh, yeah, and bands, uh, the suggestion to do anything else unless you absolutely cannot fathom a different path resonated with me. During high school, undergrad, and grad school, I've invested all my income into my music studio. I've taught myself how to write, produce, mix my own songs. It has been rough as it was not the focus of my schooling, but now I finally feel like my music is a real reflection of who I want to be as an artist. All of this is to say that I now need help with getting things going. I realize I should have spent more time on social media, YouTube. The first question anyone asks here in LA is, how many followers do you have? I'm from Sandpoint, Idaho. I never thought I would have gotten this far. I made it my mission to grind away at social media this last semester until I can get some traction to promote myself and my music. I want to present my songs to you. And if you think they're good to the cult, attach their links. If this makes it to you, I humbly ask that you take time to listen and consider sharing my message. I need help getting some traction. Something that occurred to me is the cult is so supportive of a community. The cult of the curious has kept me alive, literally and figuratively, these past two years. I'm asking for consideration of my work if you can share a song or two, share my handles, info, I'd greatly appreciate it. If anyone in the cult likes my music, wants to support a fellow spacer, it would be deeply appreciated. I'm going to release my album and music video at the fall semester, begin my journey uh, full-time, LA Just Band singing. I guess I got to find a different way to get out there. You, Joe, Lindsay, Zach, the rest of the crew are helping people so much by bringing entertainment and comfort with your art. Please keep doing what you're doing. It has meant the world to see an Idahoan from a small town build something wonderful. Sincerely, Nate Owen. Well, Nate or at Nate Owen Music on Instagram. Let's play a little bit of your track, Viking on the Metro. I saw a Viking on the Metro. I guess he wanted to be my toe. I'm just another dude on Lexapro. He's just another without Metro. I saw a Viking on the Metro. I guess he wanted to be my toe. I'm just another dude on Lexapro. He's just another without Metro. Nate. Nate doing it all himself there. That's a small taste. Viking on the Metro. You can find the full track on SoundCloud. Just search his name, Nate Owen. You can find his tracks there. It's the, it's the third one down, Nate Owen, Los Angeles. Uh, and if you search Nate Owen songs on YouTube, you can find numerous videos. And again, that is the song Viking on the Metro. Nate Owen, keep grinding, Nate Owen. Every week's a battle. Make the battle fun. Celebrate small victories. Remember that luck is often opportunity, meeting preparation, and you won't know when that opportunity is going to come. So you got to keep honing your craft. Throw your shit on Instagram, TikTok, SoundCloud, YouTube, all of it. Keep knocking on doors. You know, don't quit. Lean into the struggle. Don't stop unless you lose the joy you have for the music because then what's the point? Always remember that the inter entertainment world owes you nothing. It's not fair. And that's why you got to love your craft. Loving it will help you get through all the rough days when it feels like it doesn't love you back. So good luck, motherfucker. Hail Nimrod. You keep uh, you keep kicking out that music. Now for a little comedy. It's really made me laugh. Embarrassed sucker. John uh, Bardart Rocks just got Cummins lot. Sorry, John. I have no fucking clue how to say your name. It's, it, I have, it's, has, has, two, has, has an extra T in it. I know it's your name. Wait, John. Oh, John. Oh, I'm a fucking idiot. You know what? It's because there's no spaces. This is not a real last name. John Bardart Rocks. I was trying to read it as a name. I was like, Badart Rocks. <laughs> John Bad Art Rocks. Just got Cummins Lot in a new way. He writes, Hey, Dan, Joe, uh, team, just got Cummins Lot in an entirely different way. 
While listening to The Secret Suck at Work, my boss came up to my computer when the episode guide was up on my screen. Episodes 179 through 182 consist of two whack-offs. There's an episode titled Bleaching Kids <laughs> Bleaching Kids Buttholes and also Frosty Pegging. He sees all this and says, hmm, and nothing else. Then I have to explain that I'm not listening to some porn podcast while at work and on his dime. Thanks for doing what you do. And yes, I still have my job. John Littleton, New Hampshire. I fucking love that you still have your job, John. I also love that you shared that message. Frosty Pagan. That's a hard show title to explain away. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed that Frosty Pagan episode. And if you're wondering what Frosty Pagan is, well, that's probably what you think. Now we'll end on a cool update that involves uh, a previous update and includes some more laughs. Silly Mama Sucker. Trina Carter writes, Dear Master Sucker, or Trina. Trina or Trina. Dear Master Sucker, Head Creeper, Queen and the Queen of the Bad Magic and Supreme Goddess of all things. I'm writing this message as I now feed my eight-month-old warrior goddess and miracle baby, Blake. She not only survived her unbiblical aneurysm, but she also kicked COVID-19's ass. I'm a lucky mama. She was released from the hospital after a five-week stay. Thanks so much for your kind words. The Navajo Code Talker suck. I needed that encouragement. I'll attach an updated picture. Just prepare yourself. She is ridiculously cute. Mm -hmm. Blake is super cute, Trina. Good job cooking that little meat sack. It continues, now under my Cummins Law. Damn you, I swore it would never happen to me. I'm so careful. Well, I'm the at, at the episode where you discuss the uh, Matthew Broderick movie, War Games, and you got me. For a little backstory, my husband and I own a martial arts studio. Due to COVID, we had to downsize, found a cute little space about three miles from our original location. I was on maternity leave during the remodel process, spent a lot of time in the new space, which is a small strip of locally owned businesses. Cool, including a gaming place with super nice owners. One day I'm pulling up, listening to the suck. Uh, I turn my car car off. My phone normally shuts the podcast off. Decide to continue. Uh, my phone starts to, uh, excuse me, decides to continue playing after I turn my car off and loudly plays the part where you talk about Matthew Broderick, Brodericking his way into Sarah Jessica Parker's. Well, you know, needless to say, I didn't stop it in time to cut out that last word. Uh, pussy, I think it was that word there. Uh, well, I get out of my car and see a patron of the gaming store looking awkwardly at me while he gets into his car and pulls out of the lot in a rush. I sincerely hope I didn't cost my neighbors any business. Now I have a pretty funny story to tell. Uh, my husband and I can't wait to see in Columbus in September. You fucking rock. Keep on sucking. Sincerely, Trina Carter. P.S. I will not apologize for the email length, but I do apologize if I fucked up some words. I'm told I'm terrible when I type. Well, you didn't fuck up any words. Trina, you did great. I'm happy for you and your fam. I'm sorry COVID has been rough on your business. Uh, seems like you're adapting. Hopefully uh, you thrive and flourish now. Sarah Jessica Parker's pussy. Could have been worse, I suppose. I heard that Robin Williams uh, fucked Sarah Jessica Parker in the pussy on the street once in San Francisco. I didn't hear about that. Definitely worse pussies. Yeah, you could have, uh, you know, uh, been overheard listening to someone talk about. I mean, it's held, you know, Matthew Broderick's attention for about 25 years now. I'll I'll stop now talking about uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's pussy. But Matthew probably won't. He's probably playing with that sweet puss right now. I look forward to someone getting caught listening to all this puss talk. Hail Nimrod. Keep laughing. Keep enjoying your lives, everybody. And uh, And one more time, hail Robin Williams. Oh, man. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Please do cheer up the people around you this week. Please do not fuck anyone in the street. Uh, and expect the cops to be cool with it. I was, I was definitely lying about that. I don't want anyone to get in trouble for that. I just want you to keep on sucking, but probably not dick in the street. Just keep on sucking. Knowledge and stuff. So, not right now. You're getting your wishes, so The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.